most beautiful song. And hello, everybody. My name is Maven, the Hobbit, a Hobbit amongst many, many dwarves. We have our kinship. The Blue Mountain Regiment is is hosting us today. Thank you so much. We are so excited to be here on Laurelin and um, have a chance to be with our European attendees at a time when you don't have to be awake really super late. Um, so I want to introduce Alvar, who is the uh, leader of the Blue Mountain Regiment, and he's going to come up and give the introduction to today's class. So Alvar, where are you? Come join me. Come join me. There we go. Okay. Oh, he's still muted. Hold on. Oh, I guess you're muted on your end. You're muted. Oh, no. We have a microphone that's muted. <laughs> I know that he has a microphone because we spoke earlier. So, Alvar, your microphone is still muted. Um, but I think it's muted on your end. Oh, it requires push to talk. Oh, dear. Okay. Let's see if I can fix that. So sorry. Um, let's see. Let me get the settings going here. Here we go. All right, there you go. That should work. Are you are you with us now? Can you unmute yourself? Oh no. Now why is it we ne we have this is a new one. This is a new one for me. We're having a new problem we've never had before. Yes, we're having a new problem. Alvar, are you there now? Let's see. There you Hello? are. There you are. <laughs> Excellent. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. I am Alvar, Lord of the Blue Mountains Regiment. And as you may know, we are a dwarf-only kinship. You may recognize our blue uniforms. We are... We are role-playing kin, uh, we have both military and civil events. We also do um, weekly instance runs. Um, I did not intend to keep you any longer than that. I'm certain you all are eager to hear what our guest has to say. So I'm very proud to, to be able to present the Tolkien Professor. Very good. Thank you very much, Alvar. I appreciate your introduction, and good to see so many good, excellent, stout dwarves in attendance here today. Uh, and uh, I wanted to uh, to let everybody know that today, uh, in honor of our dwarf kinship uh, hosts, our field trip today at the end of class is going to be to Thorns Gate in the Blue Mountains uh, to see that uh, the place from which the dwarves of Erebor uh, built their homes in exile. Uh, prior to the return to Erebor. So 
uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna check that. Having having been around much of the Shire now uh, over the last few weeks, and not having any. So of course, as we follow the story through the Lord of the Rings, we're gonna be heading out to the east and not to the west for quite some time. Uh, so I thought this would be a great occasion for us to be able to go, and of course, a, a fitting occasion for us to go out uh, and uh, explore the uh, the sort of the dwarf homeland away from home there uh, in Ered Luin. So uh, that's so that's what we're gonna do at the end of the class. Well, anyway, welcome everybody. Thanks for being able to make it. We've got a wonderful crowd here today uh, for our, uh, our 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 meeting here at our special Europe friendly time, three p.m. Eastern time. And uh, I I just wanted to make one quick announcement before we begin, and that I wanted to make sure to draw your attention. Uh, to Mythmoot. I don't know if uh, those of you who have heard about the conference uh, that we are holding um, in near sort of south of Washington, D.C. Um, I just posted a link to the Twitch chat, which will give you some information about uh, to a, a little blog post that we have on uh, on Mythmoot and a link to the preliminary program that we recently released. Uh, we're very excited about Mythmoot. Mythmoot is a, a wonderful opportunity for both scholars and fans to get together and uh, sort of engage in the kind of fun that both can have and can have even better together. So uh, I am uh, I'm really excited about Mythmoot this year. This is going to be the biggest and best Mythmoot we've ever had. It's longer than it, than it's ever been before. It's a it's it's a full three day con- you know sort of three and a half day conference, uh, and uh, we're at a new venue, which is going to be awesome. I am so excited about our new venue, and uh, we should have uh, uh, so much more of everything than we have had in the past uh, before. So. I encourage you uh, to check out the pro- the preliminary program and look into that. We're definitely looking to actually do some Lotro-related stuff. We're going to have a whole gaming room uh, at the conference, and uh, it would be fun to actually arrange some uh, uh, some Lotro uh, discussions and uh, uh, gaming stuff and everything. So uh, that'll be uh, that that'll be a lot of fun. Anyway, um, it is true. I know, of course, I'm sp- I, I'm 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 making this pitch, knowing I'm doing this at a Europe-friendly time, and I know it is, uh, uh, Sam, as you say geographically uh uh unfortunate uh i know it's it's hard but uh um but just wanted to mention it we i know we do get some people we have uh, every time we've done mythmoot we've had several people traveling over from uh uh from europe and uh uh israel and uh australia so uh it would be great to um uh, to 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 see as many people as possible there uh in any case um so anyway let me uh, let's uh, let's move on then. As usual, I want to begin with um, oh one last thing about Mythmoot that I wanted to mention. If you are thinking about coming, the deadline for proposals. If you wanted, if you want to propose running a set, really any kind of proposals, you want to run any kind of session, whether it be presenting a paper or some other kind of session or activity that you would like to that you would like to run. The deadline for that is the end of February. So we have like about about a week on that. Uh, about a week and a half uh, on, uh, on on that, so that that deadline is coming up. All right. Uh, now, um, as usual, I do want to begin uh, with a, uh, a a note from the discussion board. Today's class is Frodo's choice. As we look at the end of chapter two, okay, almost the end. Little um uh, disclaimer. 
I, I'm, I'm planning to finish chapter two today, mostly. Um, the, the one bit at the end that I'm not, I know I'm not going to have time to talk about, and that is Sam's role in particular. And I, I want to, so I'm going to plan to come back at the beginning of next week, and uh, or at the beginning of our next session, rather, and, uh, and look at Sam's role and the sort of the seeds of the conspiracy that we can see uh, already beginning in chapter two. Things that I missed for many, many years. So, Anyway, we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be doing that uh, at the beginning of next time. So we still will have a little bit of chapter two material to finish up next time, but functionally, we're gonna finish chapter two uh, this uh, this week. All right. Um, but let me uh, let me let me go here to our to uh, a, a my my one notes and query here today. Uh, this from Milthalio, who put a very long and very good post, uh, uh, and I encourage you to go to the questions for Narnian section of our discussion board on lotro.mythgard.org, uh, and, uh, and 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 read his entire post because I had to cruelly shorten it uh, to fit it on the slide. Um, and uh, but this is. Um, this is some, at least, of, uh, of what he said. I think it's easy to fall into criticizing Frodo during the section, the section we discussed last time, especially when we're reading very closely and looking at individual passages, which has the effect of drawing out the timeline of the scene. I've been guilty of glossing over this area and thinking, geez, Frodo, you mad? Chill out. But I think we would do well to remember that last night, the wisest, strongest, bravest person Frodo knows told him, I need to talk to you about something, but it's too horrible to discuss after dark. Good night. And after that, and then, after what was certainly a sound and restful sleep, Frodo is told that his beloved relative and benefactor has been in possession for decades of an evil ring that was designed by the most terrifying being he's ever heard of, and the ring consumes souls over time. By the way, your soul is being consumed as we speak. Oh, that slimy, glowy-eyed creature that got you into this mess by trying to eat your surrogate father? You should feel sorry for him. He's got a lot in common with you. Can we really blame Frodo for reacting with shock, vehement denial, and anger? It's easy for us, from the comfort of our own chairs and our knowledge of what happens in the end, to look at Frodo's reaction and say he should be more sympathetic to Smeagol. Why doesn't he trust Gandalf's words? Should he be, shouldn't he be comforted that destiny wants him to have the ring? Some other power is working in his favor, right? Instead of a heroic response, we get a person who recoils from the horrifying news, shoots down attempts to gain sympathy for an enemy, Gollum, and gets, an almo- gets almost irrational in his attempts to deny and try to hide from the truth. I am drawn into Tolkien's sub-creation fully, because even though there are dragons and giant spiders and immortal elves, there are also people like me living there. I can point to times in my life, and I'm sure others can, when a hard truth was told to me, and I wanted nothing more than to escape. My gut reaction is to deny the news, resent the messenger, possibly attack their credibility, and struggle as hard as possible to get back to a place before I heard the truth. Just like Frodo. I think it's just a, this is a really, really important... Um, uh, important perspective here to keep in mind. Uh, I think she's absolutely right about this. Uh, uh, the 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 this reminder. It is, you know, and and I certainly, uh, you know, in my discussion last time, certainly didn't want to, uh, you know, imply any kind of lack of uh, sympathy with Frodo or, uh, uh, or 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 to sort of suggest that he was taking it you know, unnecessarily poorly or, or, or being wrong in some kind of bigger picture way. Um, 
yeah, it's very understandable. And this is something that I think, I mean, I think, uh, uh, Milthalio, you, you really appropriately draw attention uh, to this really significant element, not only in this chapter, but in Tolkien's writing as a whole. Um, and it's one of the things that he insisted on a lot, you know, when, um, that you can see this, this comes out in his letters a lot, when, uh, when people will ask him, a question which is basically like, why did you make this event happen? Is it because you were trying to make that point or you were trying to make this other point or were you trying to emphasize this? And he almost invariably says, uh, I-, I made that thing happen because it seemed like that was what the character would do in that situation. It was what made the most sense. Uh, in particular, when he talks about like what happens at, you know, with what happens to Frodo and what happens with Gollum at the cracks of yeah, doom. With, uh... Oop, sorry. And we're getting, uh, we're getting, uh, somebody's uh, microphone accidentally live here. Okay. Um, There we go. Um, Yeah, sorry. Getting a little interference there. I think we're good. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, Trish, there are a couple people who are coming unmuted here. I got it. Okay, you got it? it. Okay. Yep. Cool. All right. Um, It's all good. Okay. Um, Anyway, um, I just don't want people to accidentally have their mics go live unbeknownst to them, which can be kind of embarrassing. Um, anyway, so, so yeah, so I, invariably when Tolkien is asked about this, you know, he keeps saying, I'm not trying to just like make a particular point, right? That's not how the story works. What I'm doing is just like, that's what, you know, I got those characters to that. The characters arrived at that point in the story and they just like did what it seemed like those characters would do. Like what would sort of, what, 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 what fits emotionally, psychologically, um, you know, based on, uh, you know, the people that I've brought to that point in their lives and in their stories. Um, so, uh, Mithalio, clearly we can see him thinking in this same way with Frodo here, right? And I agree that Frodo's reactions are entirely understandable, are entirely, uh, uh, um, sympathetic in that way. Um, and I, I do think, so for instance, when we see him responding, you know, like uh, speaking about how abominable and how loathsome is the idea that uh, that Gollum could be connected to hobbits, it, you know, it might be easy to kind of uh, hear that, at least initially, as him being just sort of snooty, like, oh, oh how dare you suggest that hobbits could do. Um, but it, I, that's not snootiness at all. It's horror, right? Horror at the idea that his, because, I mean, it's, it's a very jarring idea, but the very violence of his language, loathsome, abominable, right, shows the horror involved in his reaction to that idea, because, of course, ultimately, it's like, look around you, the, the, these, these people around you, even the people you don't like, you know, even people like, um, you know, Lobelia Sackville Baggins could, you know, the idea that they could be degraded and that they could end up as these, like, horrible, hideous, miserable, wretched, uh, you know, cannibalistic, goggle-eyed creatures in the dark is horrifying, right? And then, of course, you think that it could happen to Bilbo and that it could happen to himself uh, and that uh, makes it even more horrible. But, of course, remember, this is going to end up becoming relevant. Um, You know, it was uh, uh, Arthur Harrow on Twitter was uh, sort of making jokes about Loathsome and Lotho's name, um, Lotho Sackville Baggins. But, of course, in Lotho Sackville Baggins and in Ted Sandyman, we're going to be seeing the corruption in in a much more minor way, right? They're not going to turn into Gollum, exactly. They're not going to become cannibals, literally, Right. Um, but we will see the 
the, the sort of at least sort of kind of the early stages of, of, of a sort of degradation of hobbits, um, which is not totally unlike what happens to Gollum and is really sad. Um, anyway, so uh, I, I, I just want I, I thank you, Mathalia, for this post. And as I said, I, I encourage you to go read the entire post rather than uh, uh, rather than uh, the the just the shortened version I've given here. One last thing, I didn't put it on the slide, but I wanted to just kind of acknowledge it, um, was, uh, um, was, oh yes, Frosty of Forakel, who, uh, who made a note on pronunciation. And in particular, the argument uh, that Frosty was making was it was against my pronunciation of Smeagol because of the accent and the separation of the E and the A. Um, and um, uh, that, um, in, in particular, noticing that in, Tolkien's own audio recordings which survive, you can hear him pronounce the name Smeagol, and so arguing from that that it should be pronounced Smeagol. I, to- I mean, I, I absolutely acknowledge that. The one thing I would say is, if you study those carefully, if you listen carefully through Tolkien's pronunciation, um, not his elvish pronunciation, I mean, his pronunciation of Quenya, like when he recites Galad- you know, when he chants Galadriel's Quenya song, is beautiful and fast. Holy cow, he is fast. And I mean, the, the Quenya just rolls out super fast uh, when he does it. Um, and his, his, his recitation of Quenya is gorgeous. However, uh, when he does his names, if you look at his pr- pronunciation of names and you go to the pronunciation keys that he wrote in the back, you'll find lots of discrepancies, actually. Um, and uh, so there's, I, in my experience looking at this stuff, Tolkien's pronunciation uh, guides are kind of more of a do as I do as I wrote, not as I say, right? Do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. Um, he often seemed to not to not adhere to his own pronunciation standards, and I don't think that that means that we're misunderstanding his pronunciation standards. He's pretty clear about that, it, but it's equally clear that he was not very careful uh, in following those in his own pronunciation, um, and I think that's fine. Um, I, I have no, um, you know, I have no, uh, I have no objections. Yeah, Grim, you can find most of them on YouTube, uh, the audio recordings. Um, there aren't extensive audio recordings. Like, you know, we can't, uh, uh, it would be awesome to have, uh, you know, a full unabridged Lord of the Rings read by J.R.R. Tolkien himself. That would be one of my favorite, uh, no, that would be my favorite uh, audio uh, uh, asset uh, on earth, but we don't have it. Um, you can hear him reading, for instance, the entire chapter five of The Hobbit, uh, which is pretty awesome, and sh- which is why I would like to hear the whole thing, because he was really quite a good reader uh, of his own works. Um, but um, anyway, but like I said, he is, he, he, in his own actual practice of pronunciation with the names, when he's just integrating the names with the English and rolling through, he's not very careful or entirely consistent, really. Um, so I, 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 uh, I have always felt that uh, sort of justifies some of my own peculiarities in translation, or not translation, in pronunciation. <clears throat> I, uh, there are certain names which I know how they're supposed to be pronounced, and I just refuse to pronounce them that way. Uh, for instance, the, uh, 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 the name of Elrond's wife, right? Technically, I know the accent is supposed to be on the penultimate syllable, so it's supposed to be Celebrian, but I, ne- I, I, I can't, I won't say it, right? I just, uh, I just, uh, I, I call her Celebrian, and I always will, and I don't care. Um, it's just, that's just kind of the way it is. Um, so anyway, I, 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 
as I say, I, I acknowledge that discrepancy, but would merely point out in response that it's it's a discrepancy. The rules are pretty clear, and I try to follow the rules where I can, but I do recommend non-slavish following of the rules. I um, met a person once, for instance, who follows the rules of pronunciation to the letter in every single thing, which leads him, by the way, to pronounce the name of the future king of Gondor, the ranger that they meet in the Prancing Pony, as Ergorn. Because the pronunciation rule says you're supposed to roll the R's all the time. All R's should be rolled. So he says Ergorn when he says that name. And I just can't. I, like, I, 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 I can't. I, I, there's no way. And then and Tolkien didn't, right? So, I mean, it's just, um, yeah. So I, um, um, uh, it's fine. <laughs> it's, 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 it's fine. Um, if you want to pronounce it Smeagol, you can totally pronounce it Smeagol. I kind of like Smeagol better. Um, but, uh, but anyway, there it is. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, let's, uh, let's get back to the, to the story now. So, okay. As Milthalio reminded us, Frodo is in a tight place right here in chapter two. Um, his reaction, as I said, against Gollum, it's not, it's not snooty. It's not racist. Um, it is horrified. His reaction about, again, remember when, when Gandalf gives his, uh, comforting thought, right? His encouragement that, you know, it's, um, you were meant to find the ring, right? There's another power at work and you were meant to find the ring, which he, he says he means to be, um, uh, he means to be comforting, right? That may be a comforting thought, he says to Frodo, and Frodo says, it is not, right? And it's, again, it's possible to hear Frodo just being sort of stubborn here. I do think Frodo was in a bit of denial, but of course, you take a second and realize how that could sound, right? I mean, I think Frodo's reaction there is, it couldn't possibly be more sensible. Um, No, it's not at all comforting to think that there's another power at work who has brought the ring to me, right? It's, I mean, from Frodo's point of view, that might as well be Gandalf saying, hey, congratulations, you're trapped. Right. You know, you've been you've been pinned into this job by some by like doom. Right. Um, By, you know, some heavy doom is upon you uh, so that you would receive and keep the ring. So doesn't that make you feel better? No, that doesn't make me feel better. Right. Uh, That's hardly that's hardly surprising at all. All of this stuff, including even the business about the other power from that point of view is um, is 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 terrible news to have dumped on him. Right. Um. Today, what we're going to look at, we're going to look at Gandalf pushing Frodo through a choice, right? Um, And what I want to do is I want to look at the process. I want to look at how Gandalf brings Frodo to that point of making a decision. I want to look at the choice that Frodo actually makes. And then I want to look at the reactions immediately afterwards, because I think that those are really important. And it's easy to kind of skip. These are, it's one of the things I think that... um, is easy to miss if you read quickly. You know, quicker than taking five weeks to do chapter two. So, uh, uh, so I, I'm I'm looking forward to getting to there, and and you'll know I've reached my goal if we get to Frodo's choice and the reactions after that. Uh, so we'll see we'll see how we do there. Um, all right, um, let's um, let's back up a little bit. Um, I skipped this passage before, but I want to. Uh, I wanted to bring it up because uh, I think it's an important context for the situation that Frodo is in. And when we think about his choice, um, because, of course, ultimately this chapter uh, 
is leading up not just, this is not just a, and now the chapter of exposition. I mean, of course, there is a lot of exposition in this chapter, but the, um, the primary thing that this chapter is leading to um, is action, right? Is Frodo's choice. And look at the context we get. Uh, so this is, of course, the segue to the beginning of their conversation. Next morning, after a late breakfast, the wizard was sitting with Frodo by the open window of the study. A bright fire was on the hearth, but the sun was warm, and the wind was in the south. Everything looked fresh, and the new green of spring was shimmering in the fields and on the tips of the tree's fingers. Gandalf was thinking of a spring nearly eighty years before, when Bilbo had run out of Bag End without a handkerchief. His hair was perhaps whiter than it had been then, and his beard and eyebrows were perhaps longer. Longer? His eyebrows already stuck out past the brim of his hat. How was that possible? And his face more lined with care and wisdom. But his eyes were as bright as ever, and he smoked in blue smoke rings with the same vigor and delight. Okay. Um, uh, notice the parallel that's being... So there are two things that this passage is doing, right? As we come into the conversation with Gandalf and Frodo the narrator gives us two pieces of context, right? First, the scenery, right? Um, the bright fire, the warm sun, the southerly wind, right? Everything looked fresh. The new green of spring spring shimmering in the fields and on the tips of the tree's fingers, right? Uh, it's a beautiful description. But of course, it's more than, it's, it's not just any random kind of beauty, right? This is spring beauty. This is, hopefulness and new life coming, right? This is not, uh, uh, you know, it's not autumn, right? It's not, um, uh, it's, it's not, um, uh, uh, you know, a winter beauty. This is, this is, this is, this is a beginning, right? Um, and a contrast in a lot of ways, I think, with what we're going to be hearing about, right? Um, so th that by itself kind of uh, kind of struck me. Um, uh, not a cat. I, I do think it's kind of significant, sort of interesting that we do get this from Gandalf's point of view at the beginning. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting observation there. Um, that's quite infrequent, really. There's very rarely do we get Gandalf's point of view when do we get uh, the narrator kind of showing us what was in Gandalf's mind. Right? He might tell us about it sometimes, but sort of seeing a scene... Um, from uh, from Gandalf's point of view, as we do here, is pretty unusual, um, and I think that 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 itself is an interesting piece of context, right, for um, uh, for the conversation that's about to come. Uh, we're encouraged not necessarily to kind of see it initially from Frodo's point of view, but from Gandalf's point of view. Um, which I think is really is really fascinating, um, and uh, it is. I agree. Several of you are pointing out that they uh, it's it's somewhat striking that he does age, right? Um, yeah, he does. The exactly what is the status of the bodies of the wizards? It's it's different. It's weird. They are not merely. I mean, weird in the sense of unusual, um, almost unprecedented. We just don't get this uh, with other. Um, creatures, like when, you know, Manway takes on a body, it doesn't age, right? Sauron, stuff has happened to his body, but, you know, he's not getting gray hairs, uh, presumably. I mean, unless he wants them, I guess. Um, uh, but the, 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 the wizard is aging. They have a, wizards have a different relationship with their bodies. Remember in The Hobbit, he was afraid of dying. You know, he was going to jump down from the trees into the spears of the goblins, uh, and he was going to kill a bunch of them, but he was going to be killed, almost certainly. 
Um, so yeah, their relationship with their bodies is 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 different. It's different from men. It's different from elves. They he ages, but at a, a, a sort of a unique rate, right? In eighty years, you can tell the difference. It's not a huge difference, but you can tell the difference. More difference than there would be with an elf, but way less than with a human, uh, or even a dwarf. So, yeah, I, I think uh, it's um, that is kind of an interesting uh, an interesting point. The second thing, though, after we get all this spring imagery, this beginning imagery, we get the recollection of Bilbo, right? We get the, rec- the, the recollection of the Hobbit. We are instructed, in this sense, to kind of think about this conversation with Frodo in the context of what happened with Bilbo at the beginning of The Hobbit, right? Um, it was on a morning just like this that Bilbo had run out of Bag End without a handkerchief, Um is Frodo going to run out of Bag End without a handkerchief, right? Is that what is going to happen here? In a sense, of course, that's where Gandalf is going, right? Um, Gandalf is going to be bringing this conversation around to the point where Frodo, he obviously is going to be hoping that Frodo is going to choose to leave Bag maybe not dash out the door and down the lane like Bilbo did literally, but um, but that he's going to choose to leave Bag End too. Um, this is the point at which adventure is descending upon Frodo. Right, just as adventure, you know, came in for tea to Bilbo's house in chapter one of The Hobbit. Um, so uh, that's the context that we get here at the beginning. That's the kind of the kind of comparison between Frodo and Bilbo that is set up at the beginning. And I just want I just wanted to kind of recall that we got this at the beginning of the conversation because, of course, Tolkien will explicitly allude to it again at the end of the conversation. So it's worth it's worth noticing. All right. Uh, this is a section still a little bit back from where we were last time, um, but this is um, this is right after he has confirmed. So he's just thrown the ring in the fire, right, and read the letters. They, you know, he's recited the poem and he's just confirmed this is the One Ring, right. Uh, and this is his sort of segue and then into the second half of the conversation. But last night I told you of Sauron the Great, the Dark Lord. The rumors that you have heard are true. He has indeed risen again, and has left his hold in Mirkwood, and returned to his ancient fastness in the dark tower of Mordor. That name even you hobbits have heard of, like a shadow on the border of old stories. After a defeat and a respite, the shadow takes another shape and grows again. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And already, Frodo, our time is beginning to look black. The enemy is fast becoming very strong. His plans are far from ripe, I think, but they are ripening. We shall be hard put to it. We should be very hard put to it, even if it were not for this dreadful chance. The enemy still lacks one thing to give him strength and knowledge to beat down all resistance, break the last defenses, and cover all the lands in a second darkness. He lacks the one ring. Okay. Um... Remember, to this point, uh, Gandalf's emphasis in the conversation has been on um, the danger to Frodo, right? Remember, that's where he begins the conversation with uh, how, what effect the ring has on its, on its holder, right? Um, And how uh, the danger, whoops, sorry, here we go, the danger that, uh, that Bilbo is in, that, uh, but has now escaped the danger that Frodo is still currently in, um, Notice what Frodo's reaction to this is, right? He hears all this stuff, and he says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. Um, He's not the only one who's going to respond in that kind of way, right? Um, 
this is something that we're going to see from many people. Um, we will see, of course, King Theoden confronted by a very similar kind of um, uh, uh, a, a very similar kind of thought, right? Um, we will see Aragorn confronted with this. Um, we will see Denethor, of course, confronted with this. Denethor very famously confronted with this prospect. That is, okay, so it turns out during your time is the time when all of this stuff is going gonna, is gonna to happen. Right, everything's gonna get bad. Everything's gonna gonna uh, uh, gonna come to a head during your time. What are you gonna do about it? Right? How are you going to respond? And fr- and so f- so when Frodo says, "I wish it need not have happened in my time," it's very understandable, right? Not, I don't want to do anything, but I wish I didn't have to choose, right? And Gandalf acknowledges, "Yeah, I, I, I so do I." Now when he says, "So do I," uh, it's kind of ambiguous, right? On the one hand, it could mean, yeah, I wish that too. I wish it need not have happened in my time. But in context, actually, that doesn't make that much sense, right? Because, of course, Gandalf is here. Gandalf's whole job, right? Gandalf is in Middle-earth uh, in order to be here during this time. So it's not like a, a coincidence. Like, it might have happened in his father's time. It might have happened in his grandson's time, but it had to be in his time, right? That's what the others mean, right? That's what Theoden means. That's what Denethor means. Why couldn't I have just been like one of my fathers who enjoyed a reign of peace and then died and handed off his throne to a, to a, to a worthy successor, right? That's what they're interested in. That's what they're asking asking about. That's not Gandalf's situation, right? Um, rather, I suspect that it means uh, I also wished it need not have happened in your time, right? What you just wished, I wish uh, I wish too. Um, yeah, Lincoln, that's exactly what I was just what I was just was just talking about. I think he's affirming that being like, you know, Frodo says, I, I, I wish it didn't happen. It didn't happen to me, right? And Gandalf saying, yeah, I wish it didn't happen to you either. Right. You know, I, I'm with you. I hear what you're saying. Um, everybody who lives to see such times feels this way. And of course, notice he immediately contextualizes it to say, dude, you're not alone. Right. Yes, of course, this is a, you've been a, you've been dealt a challenging hand. Right. But so is everybody else who is now. Right. That's um, not for us to decide. Right. All that we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Um, and notice how this also connects with the uh, uh, the other question about the other power, right? And Frodo's response to that, whether or not it should be a comforting thought, right? That there was some other power at work and that Frodo was meant to find the ring. Um, everybody is, it's not that like Frodo is doomed and no one else is doomed. Everybody is doomed, right? Everybody is doomed to something. Everybody is dealt a particular hand, Everybody has to play the hand that they're given. Uh, And it's for some people, they're put in a more difficult situation. Um, But, uh, you know, all all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And that decision, ultimately, this is the decision that Gandalf is going to be pushing Frodo towards. Right. Um, By the end of this chapter, he is going to be pushing Frodo to decide what he's going to do with the time that is given to him, right? What is, what he's going to do in the situation that he has, uh, uh, that Frodo has sort of discovered himself in, right? Um, the enemy is fast becoming strong. We shall be hard put to it. Um, notice how Gandalf immediately turns around and says, note that this special 
especially like bad seeming doom that has come upon you here is actually a special opportunity, right? Um, kind of depends on how you look at it. Like, yes, on the one hand, that was, uh, it's not great that you've been placed in this position through no fault of your own or any planning of your own or as any consequence of your own decision in any way. Uh, you've been put into this place where the Dark Lord himself is hunting for you, but uh, it's also an opportunity, right? Um, we should be very hard put to it, even if it were not for this dreadful chance. They have a chance. It's a dreadful chance, but they have a chance. They've been given a chance, right? They actually can do something. Um, they have an opportunity to um, uh, to strike against Sauron. They've been given the a means to oppose him that they would could not possibly have predicted that they would have. Um, and again, it's a dreadful chance. Um, and notice even the construction of Gandalf's sentence there. It's not like he's saying, dude, look on the bright side, right? We should be very hard put to it even if it were not for this dreadful chance. He acknowledges this chance that we're given is not going to make it easier. It's going to make it harder. It gives us hope, right? More hope than we would possibly have had or could possibly have expected to have. And yet it's going to make it worse in the short term, right? Even if we didn't have this chance, we'd be hard put to it. Um, you, the doom that's laid upon you, Frodo, would be a dark doom, even if the ring didn't exist, right? If you're just living in this time when the Dark Lord is rising again, and if he's going to conquer Middle-earth, it would be, you, you'd be hard put to it, right? Your doom would be a difficult doom. Even if we didn't have the dreadful chance, but we do. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, 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 gravity. Great. Uh, great point. Gravity's pointing out that how uh, Gandalf's use of the plural here. Right. All we have to do is what to decide with the time that is given us. He's not just lecturing to Frodo. Right. All you have to do is what to do. With, all you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. Right. So I'll sit here and wait. Um, he does suggest that they're sort of in this together. Right. Um, uh, and he does sort of kind of claim responsibility. Amy's Revenge was just saying the same thing. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that he is, uh, he's, he's sort of speaking of himself and Frodo, but more than just himself and Frodo. He's sort of, I think, signaling to Frodo here, don't think that you're alone, right? You have to make a choice. You have to decide what to do with the time that's given to you, but, but you're not alone, right? It's not just on you. Okay, so with those two things for context, let's go back to where we were. Um, so this is right after, so Gollum has just, his, Gollum's worst has been done, right? Yes, alas, through him the enemy has learned that the one has been found again. He knows where Isildur fell. He knows where Gollum found his ring. He knows that it is a great ring, for it gave long life. He knows that it is not one of the three, for they have never been lost, and they endure no evil. He knows that it is not one of the seven or the nine, for they are accounted for. He knows that it is the one, and he has at last heard, I think, of hobbits and the shire. The Shire. He may be seeking for it now, if he has not already found out where it lies. Indeed, Frodo, I fear that he may even think that the long unnoticed name of Baggins has become important. This is the bad news, right? This is the seriously bad news. Um, that uh, I, 
I mean, he's finally now worked up to the point in the conversation where he reveals, yeah, okay, so it's not just that the ring that you inherited from Bilbo is, you know, like radioactive and is uh, perverting you inevitably to evil. It's not just that the Dark Lord has in fact returned and his armies are going to be spreading across uh, uh, the West and bringing uh, all of Middle-earth under a second darkness. But also, he's looking for you personally by name. He knows who you are. He knows your name. He knows where you live. And he's hunting for you, right? Um, that's kind of a big deal, right? That's a really big deal. Uh, and this is uh, this is this is pretty heavy. Um, uh, so, at, by at this point, Gandalf has now revealed uh, absolutely the worst that he. Uh, um, that he could possibly reveal. And by the way, notice how his own his his own reasoning about Sauron's reasoning follows his own experimentation. Right? Sauron, of course, would would not have to go through what Gandalf has gone through in order to confirm that it was the one. Right? Um, that is to say, because remember, part of the problem was Gandalf being uncertain. Like, could it be one of the nine? Could it be one of the seven? Well, Sauron knows better than Gandalf does. Right? What happened to the nine and to the seven? Um, they both know exactly where the three are. So, well, okay, they don't know exactly technically. Um, though I still consider the uh, the ownership of the three rings, apart from Gandalf's ring, uh, the worst kept secret in all of Middle Earth. I mean, the idea that Galadriel has a ring of power has to be the worst kept secret uh, in Middle Earth. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah. So, uh, so he, as soon as he has figured it, as soon as Gandalf has confirmed it, he can see immediately. Sauron is going to work this out really quickly, right? <laughs> Sorry. Um, Jonathan says that uh, Celeborn might have had it. That's hilarious, Jonathan. That's really cute. I think that's a fun idea. Um, but seriously. Anyway, um, uh, <laughs> let's not kid ourselves, right? <laughs> let's definitely not kid ourselves. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, so where does he? Where does he now? Uh, 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 Alpha. That's a great question. Is Sauron a hundred percent certain about the seven? I I suppose there might be some room for doubt about the seven, as like presumably Sauron wasn't on hand when the ones that were consumed by dragons were consumed by dragons. So you know, maybe there's a chance of some slippage there that he doesn't know whether they're accounted for or not. The other thing, though, that Gandalf doesn't say that I would always think, I would have to think, he's got Gollum right there, right? Um, Does he know enough about the rings? Does he know his own ring well enough to be able to tell, this guy had a great ring, yes, his life has been protracted and stuff. The way that he's been affected, the way that he's been corrupted, you know, would that kind of like have the flavor of his own ring of power to him? Would he be able to tell from Gollum that this dude didn't have just any ring but had his ring? I, um, um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I can't, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that, uh, uh, Sauron does not, is not able to figure that out pretty easily, uh, uh, actually, as when he finds Gollum. Again, Gandalf doesn't go there, so that's speculation on my part. Um, but I have to think that the dwarf rings would... Because they do seem to be designed for the dwarves, and in particular ways, with the whole uh, gold acquisition element of those rings. Um, I would think that somebody corrupted by one of the seven rings would just look different. And Sauron, of anyone, would know the difference. So, um, anyway... 
Exactly. Grim was just saying a, a very, a very, a very similar thing. Um, but uh, <laughs> Sharon is asking, did Sauron sniff Gala when he was interrogated? Well, quite. That's probably where the ring raids got it, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, quite, quite possible. Um, anyway, so what's Frodo's reaction here? Okay. But this is terrible, cried Frodo. Far worse than the worst, I imagined, from your hints and warnings. I love the little kind of dig that he gets to Gandalf. Like, why didn't you say this earlier, right? You've been beating around the bush all last night and all day today so far. right? Only now you're going to drop on me the fact that the Dark Lord is hunting for me by name, right? Oh, Gandalf, best of friends. He doesn't hold it against him, right? Um, though one is inclined to um, wonder... Is there any note of sarcasm there? I mean, it's possible, right? That, like, for a moment in his fear and exasperation, he lets a, a touch of sarcasm in there. Oh, Gandalf, best of friends, what am I to do now, right? Um, I don't think... I'm not saying that he's being sarcastic or anything, but um, but but I... I'd, I'm not sure that there isn't just a touch because that's it's kind of over the top, right? Oh, Gandalf, best of friends, right? Um, or even at the least, maybe something a little bit demanding there, right? That is, it, oh, Gandalf, if you are the best of friends, tell me what I am to do now, right? Um, yeah, anyway, um, for now, I am really afraid. What am I to do? What a pity Bilbo did not stab the vile creature when he had a chance. Frodo's reaction is to... Again, uh, like uh, uh, Nathalia was saying, is to sort of escape. Denial, right? Um, uh, and uh, think of how often how often all of us do this, right? Something bad happens, it force, you know, forcing... Something bad has happened, which has forced us to a, a decision that we don't want to have to make or to confront something we don't want to have to confront. And our first response is, oh, why did that have to happen? Oh, if only it could have been avoided. Um, and that's exactly what he... Uh, um, exactly what he does here, right? What a pity Bilbo didn't stab that vile creature when he had it. If Bilbo had just stabbed Gollum we wouldn't be having this problem, right? Um, uh, I mean, seriously, obviously, right? That would have been like, just, what a wasted opportunity. Notice what Gandalf does. Gandalf immediately pounces on it, and he doesn't just oppose the sentiment, right? He doesn't just say, actually, you're wrong about that, right? No, 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 Bilbo stabbing Gollum would not have solved the problem. He does say that, but it's not just that, right? Notice how he pounces on Bilbo's, or sorry, Frodo's conspicuous turn of phrase. Because it is just a turn of phrase, right? What a pity that Bilbo didn't... He's not talking about pity, right? He's just using a figure of speech. What a pity Bilbo didn't stab that vile creature, right? It's too bad that that didn't happen, is all he means, right? Gandalf, however, fixates on the word because the word is ironic, right? Pity? It was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy, not to strike without need. And he has been well rewarded, Frodo. Be sure that he took so little hurt from the evil and escaped in the end because he began his ownership of the ring so with pity. Now, pity gets a bad rap in the modern world. Nobody wants to talk about pity anymore. Nobody brags about pity. Nobody recommends pity. You don't, you won't hear anybody being like, I recommend that you be, uh, you know, you're, 
you know, nobody's New Year's resolution involves showing more pity to folks anymore. Like, it's just not a thing, right, that people like. Um, and I think that's a, that's a terrible shame, actually. Um, what pity is, pity as it's being described by Gandalf here, pity is simply the acknowledgement of the suffering of somebody else. That's not bad. Nobody likes to be pitied, because to be pitied Uh, you can only be pitied by somebody who is not in the situation that you are in, right? We like to be commiserated with. So if you are unhappy about something, you might like to talk to other people who are unhappy in similar ways, right? That's a thing that you might easily do. Um, However, and you you might appreciate that. You might even seek that out, right? But rarely, I mean, so like, say for instance, um, if you've just experienced a very painful breakup, right? Uh, you know, you've had a relationship which has just fallen apart. The friends that you least want to hang out with, right, are the people who are in happy and stable relationships, right? You might seek out other people who have recently had their relationships fall apart, but you're unlikely to go. And, you know, the idea that they... Um, or show pity, might show they might pity you, right? Because they are in in this sense a sort of um, a, a sort of superior position. And Cecilia, just as you say, in our modern definition, to be pitied is to be looked down on from a supposed loftier position. Um, and in a sense, in a sense, that's true. That is to say, like to to have your pain acknowledged by somebody who is not in pain, right? Um, to have your situation uh, uh, sympathized with, to have compassion shown to your situation by somebody who's not in your situation, right? There is, to have pity, there has to be a discrepancy. There has to be a difference, or else it would just be, uh, it would just be, again, commiseration, not pity, right? But to acknowledge the suffering of someone else is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Um, and our desire not to be shown pity is often, I think, the thing which is not good, really. Um, it's not healthy. It's not healthy for us to lash out at people who are still happy in relationships if we're ha- unhappy, right? Um, it's understandable, but it's not, it's not healthy. It's not good, right? Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, I think... Uh, um, and good, exactly, as a, oh, wow, awesome Anglo-Saxon name that's going to be hard to pronounce, but I'll just call you uh, Weyalof. Uh, as uh, Weyalof says, you know, you, when you look at the scene in Chapter 5 of The Hobbit, um, what we see is Bilbo getting a glimpse of what it's like to be Gollum. He, exactly, he imagined, he puts himself in Goblin's position imaginatively, um, and he finds it horrible. Uh, and that is what moves him to pity. Um, so absolutely, there is... You cannot show pity. You cannot feel pity for someone without compassion, um, without empathy. Um, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing bad about that at all. Um, so Gandalf takes the turn of phrase, right? What a pity, and seizes on it. No, 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 no. Pity is exactly what happens. And of course, um, at the same uh, point, he emphasizes um, uh uh, 
at the same point, he emphasizes that Bilbo started his career not just differently from Gollum, but exactly the opposite. I mean, think about the situations, right? Think about the murder of Diagol by Smeagol, right? And the pity on of Bilbo for Gollum, right? It's almost exactly the opposite. Um, the kind of relationship, the kind of position. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. Oh, excellent. Uh, uh, Cecilia makes a really great point about sort of pity in the modern sense. Um, uh, uh, Cecilia is blind, um, and she says, you know, I just, you know, that we, when somebody says, I just don't know how I would survive if I were blind. I admire you so much. You're so brave and amazing is the kind of pity that, that a blind person doesn't like, right? Um, uh, because essentially it boils down to, I'm so glad I'm not where you are now. And I agree, Cecilia, that's, that's not the kind of pity that Gandalf is talking about, and that's not pity, right? Um, uh, there's a different... Uh, pity doesn't have to be smug, right? Um, and, because often it is tainted with that kind of smugness. Uh, any element of self-congratulation, any element of, of whew, well, by at least I'm not in the situation you're in, right? That would be awful. Uh, I would feel horrible if I were you right now. You're absolutely right. But that's not pity. That's not pity. In, in a sense, that's the opposite of pity, right? That's self-absorption instead of compassion for the other. Pity is all about the other person, right? It's all about responding to the misery, to the difficulties of someone else. Um, it's a, in a sense, it's self-forgetful, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, exactly, Grim. It could be I've been where you are and understand what you're going through, or at least I, could Im- I, 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 I can imagine... Or I can try to imagine what you must be going through, and I can recognize how I can recognize how horrible that is, um, and I can show you the kind of compassion and the kind of tenderness and the kind of uh, generosity that I would want somebody to show to me in that, you know, if if I were in that situation. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, a roast deer characterizes it as uh, uh, the, uh, the type of pity used to make someone feel better about their own situation, despite the troubles of the person who they are supposed to be pitying. Exactly. But again, my argument is none of that stuff is pity. Those things often kind of come along with or are associated with pity. And we have come to identify that almost with pity, right? That kind of self-absorbed condescension, um, the sort of reassuring oneself that at least I'm not as bad off as that poor schmuck, right? That's how we think of pity, but that isn't pity. That is, that is not pity. Um, uh, that is, uh, in its way, almost the opposite of pity. Anyway, as I was saying, Bilbo's uh, situation is, is, is opposite, right? And uh, I forget who it was who said it. If, if, uh, yes, if Bilbo had stabbed the vile creature, that vile creature, right? Notice that again. Notice the contrast between Bilbo's thoughts in the moment that he didn't stab Gollum and Frodo's in the moment that he's uh, wishing that Bilbo had stabbed the vile creature, right? The complete lack of, emp- of empathy that Bilbo shows or is feeling towards Gollum in this moment. Um, and Gandalf pounces on that contrast, right? Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, everyone's still thinking about pity. And I agree, it's a, it's a big subject. Um, uh, Lincoln says, uh, I guess with my modern and, you know, egalitarian 
sensibilities, I tend to associate pity with condescension and implicit hierarchy. See, notice, Lincoln, you also associate condescension with being a bad thing, right? Um, which is a, a modern idea uh, because of the whole egalitarian thing that you're talking about. Um, uh, whereas I would call uh, a more horizontal, solidarity-oriented expression empathy or compassion. Um, uh, yeah, sure. Um, uh but actually, I think in a way, yeah, sure, I agree. Um, but the inequality is the important thing, right? Again, um, you can have compassion with someone because you are experiencing the same thing, right? Or something that you can, because you can relate to it in some way, right? The whole point of pity is that you are, you are, uh, you are feeling for the suffering of someone who is suffering in a way that you are not suffering. You're not feeling it, right? And yet, you can step out of your own experience and empathize with that person, right? Um, too often, when we say, you know, when we talk about having compassion for others, it's, it's, it's about identification, right? Um, I suffer in a similar way or I have suffered in a similar way. And so I know where you are. And so I, I, I really feel for Bilbo doesn't know where Gollum is. He has the vaguest sense of what Gollum's life is like. But even that very brief and very vague sense of what Gollum's life must be like is enough to fill him with pity and with horror. Um, so, uh, so I, in, in that sense, the, the, the inequality, if you like, pity, unlike condescension, which does have an implied hierarchy involved, pity is not hierarchical, unless you're talking about a hierarchy of suffering, essentially. Um, but what, what the concept of pity does insist upon is that the person who is showing pity is, not, is being, in that way, entirely unselfish, right? Um, they're not thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about their own experience. They're focusing only on the suffering of the other person. Um, and that, I think, is, uh, is what was so important about Bilbo's moment of pity and what Gandalf is trying to suggest to Frodo here. And he, Gandalf, is being pretty gentle here in trying to sort of urge Frodo to rethink his immediate reaction. Right. Um, Cecilia, you're absolutely right. We will get to talk about this again five or six years from now when we get to Faramir and Eowyn. You're so right. We will. Re we will. So, 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 so uh, very good. I'll leave this behind because we'll return to it soon. Um, uh, presumably before most of us die of old age. So that'll be good. Um, but uh, yeah, excellent. Um, OK. Hey, I have an idea. Let's keep going. I'm sorry, said Frodo, but I am frightened and I do not feel any pity for Gollum. You have not seen him, Gandalf broke in, which is an interesting comment, right? Um, Frodo's, the, uh, it, uh, in a sense, Gandalf is acknowledging that the, 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 the sort of the theoretical act of pity that he is, you know, he's asking Frodo even just to kind of go along with the act of pity in theory, right? Uh, and um, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, Gandalf recognizes, you know, it's easier if you can actually see him, right? 
again, Gollum is totally theoretical to you. Gollum is a monster out of a children's story to you, right? Children's story because he was told it. He, Frodo, was told it when he was a child, right? By Bilbo. Um, but um, when you see him, when it be- when his situation becomes real to you, you will probably you will probably feel different. Um, no, and I don't want to," said Frodo. "I can't understand you. Do you mean to say that you and the elves have let him live on after all those horrible deeds? Now, at any rate, he is as bad as an orc and just an enemy. He deserves death." Um, I think I skipped the paragraph where Gandalf talked about how you know Gollum would sneak into windows and and eat people's babies. So it's not like Gollum hasn't done horrible things, right? Um, uh, like clearly certifiable horrible things. Um, notice the sort of I want to be careful using this word, but simplicity of Frodo's response. I, do you mean to say I was like, wait, hang on a second. Um, notice Frodo's just processing the fact like, wait, you didn't execute him? Like, even now? Like, it's one thing to say maybe Bilbo should or shouldn't have killed him at the time, right? But obviously you've put him to death by now. Clearly. Right? You haven't? Seriously? He deserves death. Deserves it? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death, and some die that deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. I have not much hope that Gollum can be cured before he dies, but there is a chance of it, and he is bound up with the fate of the ring. My heart tells me that he has some part to play yet, for good or ill, before the end, and when that comes, the pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many, yours not least. In any case, we did not kill him. He is very old and very wretched. The wood elves have him in prison, but they treat him with such kindness as they can find in their wise hearts. Um, yes, yes, Gollum deserves death. Right, I dare say he does. Right, um, you know, has ha, have his deeds merited death? Uh, yes, that's not Gandalf's concern. Right, notice, um, uh, notice, sort of the rationale that Gandalf um, uh, goes through here. Right, uh, on the one hand, he's interested in the question of capital punishment, generally speaking. Right, don't be too eager to deal out death in judgment. Um, you know, you you can give death to those who deserve it. Can you give life to those that deserve it? Um, if you can't, then maybe it's not actually supposed to be in your power to do that kind of thing. Right? Don't be so eager to deal out death in judgment. Um, by the way, I've heard many people uh, sort of give this as like an anti-capital uh, punishment argument, generally speaking. Um, Gandalf isn't talking about kings and governments here. Um, I suspect that Gandalf would think kind of differently about that. He's talking to Frodo, a private person, right? Um, uh, who is sort of saying it really, obviously, we should kill Gollum if we catch him. Um, you should have killed Gollum when you caught him. And he's like, mm, no. Um, but, uh, uh, but anyway, it's, you know, certainly like it's, that's not, that's not in our, so whether or not, you know, this, uh, argument by Gandalf could be applied in like a political level is to me, I think a, a, a non-trivial question, but, um, but certainly if you're a private individual, this is not, it's not your bag, right? That is not what you're supposed to do. Um, because you don't have that kind of power. Even the wise cannot see all ends. Um, and notice his emphasis. I have not much hope that Gollum can be cured before he dies, 
right? Notice how he shifted the whole paradigm of the conversation there. Does he deserve it? I dare say he does. Notice how he just throws that out, right? Yeah, probably. I guess so. But that's not the question. That's not what matters, right? What matters to Gandalf? Can he be cured or not? He's already asked about that. Um, he's already, you know, suggested that maybe Gollum could be cured. Um, and he admits here, I don't have uh, much hope that Gollum can be cured, but there's a chance of it. Um, remember, we've already gotten to the passage earlier where he says that uh, there's not no hope for the curing of Gollum, right? Um, that's his emphasis. His first question is not, um, his first question is not, can they, uh, uh, should they kill him? His question is, can they cure him? And that shows Gandalf's attitude, right? That shows Gandalf's, uh, shows how he sort of embodies this idea of pity, right? That he's been, that he's been describing. Um, but there's more, right? Um, there's more that says he is bound up in the fate of the ring. So there are kind of two things involved here for Gandalf, and I think this is an important principle that we'll see at many points in The Lord of the Rings. On the one hand, we have a general kind of moral principle, right? Uh, Gandalf's moral outlook. Focus first on curing rather than on punishing. Right. Um, I want to assess his ability to be cured much more than I want to assess his deserving of punishment, right, or of execution in this case. Um, that's the sort of the general moral principle, right? Pity is good. In addition to the general moral principle, there is also the uh, insight that he has. He is bound up with the fate of the ring. Gandalf says, my heart tells me he has some part to play yet for good or ill before the end, right? His heart tells him he's got an, he's got, he's got an instinct, right? That, um, you know, something tells him that this is going to be important. Um, what you will often, you will often see people making deci- good guys, that is making decisions on one or both of those two premises, right? Either the, I have a sense that this is what is supposed to happen. Or, this is right, that we should do that. And it's interesting to watch those things interact, I think. Um, With Gandalf, notice he starts with the moral issue, right? Um, uh, He doesn't kill Gollum because he doesn't think it would be right, right? Um, He's not going to be so eager to deal out death and judgment. But that's sort of endorsed by the general feeling that he has, right? the feeling that uh, there's a reason, capital R reason, right, not to kill him. Um, Okay. Now, finally, he explains his own decision, right? All the same, said Frodo, even if Bilbo could not kill Gollum, I wish he had not kept the ring. I wish he had never found it, that I had not got it. Why did you let me keep it? Why didn't you make me throw it away or destroy it? Now, uh, Milthalio, here's Frodo really grasping at straws, right? This, he is in full, I just wish this weren't happening. I wish this weren't happening mode here, right? This is panic. Um, a lot of what he's saying here doesn't make sense, as Gandalf immediately says. Let you? Make you? Said the wizard. Haven't you been listening to all that I've said? You're not thinking of what you're saying. 
But as for throwing it away, that was obviously wrong. These rings have a way of being found. In evil hands, it might have done great evil. Worst of all, it might have fallen into the hands of the enemy. Indeed, it certainly would, for this is the one, and he is exerting all his power to find it or draw it to himself. Why didn't you do something else, Gandalf? Why didn't we handle this situation better? Why did I just why did you let me just keep this ring here for all of these years until now the Dark Lord is on the move and he's looking for it and he's hunting me down personally? Why did you let it come to this, Gandalf? That's what's at issue here, right? And Gandalf says, Look, what were the options? Right? What could we have done? Have you get rid of it? Throw it away? Hide it? No! That was obviously wrong. Right? It would certainly have fallen into the hands of the enemy. It was safe. We knew where it was, right? It has to be kept by somebody. It should be you, right? Well, of course, right? Because the other power brought the ring to them in the first place, and Gandalf couldn't think of any better options, right? He acknowledges, of course, my dear Frodo, it was dangerous for you. Remember, this goes back to that initial conversation. How long have you known about this, Gandalf? Of course, my dear Frodo, it was dangerous for you, and that has troubled me deeply, but there was so much at stake that I had to take some risk, though even when I was far away, there has never been a day when the Shire has not been guarded by watchful eyes. As long as you never used it, I did not think that the ring would have any lasting effect on you, not for evil, not at any rate for a very long time. And you must remember that nine years ago, when I last saw you, I still knew little for certain. Right? You keeping the ring was safest and best for the ring, you know, for everybody, for the protection of the ring, and it would do the least harm, right? It, it wouldn't harm you that much. And I was keeping an eye on you to make sure you weren't coming to harm, right? And I didn't even know for sure, right? But of course, there still is that one, um, uh, there's, there still is that, uh, a good, Milthalia and Whaleoff both at the same time were saying that this was, uh, this is Frodo's struck by lightning, struck by lightning moment, just like in chapter one of The Hobbit. Yes, yes. Uh, he never, uh, makes quite as much of a fool of himself as Bilbo does in chapter one of The Hobbit. Um, but, um, th- though, uh, I bet that he's wishing that somebody would just lay him down on the, on the sofa with a drink at his elbow, frankly, but, um, but yeah, so, so, Clearly, this was the best thing. This was the best thing uh, that um, that he could do. Right. This was his best and really his only option. Um, well, but wait, there was one other option, though. Right. And uh, Frodo immediately uh, uh, well, so th- two things. Right. Um, first. Frodo has said, well, why didn't you just make me destroy it? That would have solved the problem, right? Now, Gandalf could just tell him from the beginning, dude, you have no means to destroy it, right? That wasn't an option. Gandalf knows that. Um, But Frodo doesn't. And notice what he does, what Gandalf does. Gandalf humors him. Try! Try now! Go ahead. Throw it in the fire. Frodo drew the ring out of his pocket again and looked at it. It now appeared plain and smooth, without mark or device that he could see. The gold looked very fair and pure, and Frodo thought how rich and beautiful was its color, how perfect was its roundness. It was an admirable thing, and altogether precious. When he took it out, he had intended to fling it from him into the very hottest part of the fire. But he found now that he could not do so, not without a great struggle. He weighed the ring in his hand, hesitating and forced himself to remember all that Gandalf had told him, and then, with an effort of will, he made a movement, as if to cast it away. 
but he found that he had put it back in his pocket. Gandalf laughed grimly. You see? Already you too, Frodo, cannot easily let it go, nor will to damage it. And I could not make you, except by force which would break your mind. But as for breaking the ring, force is useless. Even if you took it and struck it with a heavy sledgehammer, it would make no dint in it. It cannot be unmade by your hands or by mine. Again, he could have just said that at the beginning, right? But he doesn't do that. Um, uh, yeah, uh, well off, I do think that uh, he is testing Frodo to see where he is with the ring, right? You know, he's been watching him to see, uh, you know, we've been joking about, like, he comes in to, you know, to make sure he's not feeling evil, right? But, you know, it's hard to tell from the outside. Um, and he remembers, Gandalf shows that he remembers, says that, you know, very, very clearly what happened with Bilbo, right, after the party. Um, this does seem to be a test. How much, um, how much is it like Bilbo? Exactly, yeah. Um, the, my, I, I, my subtitle on the slide is recalling Bilbo's moment, right? That division in Bilbo's own mind. Uh, don't you want to? give it up? Don't you want to give it to Frodo? Yes, and no. Now it comes to it, right? Um, That division of will. This is the first time, this is an important passage, because this is the first time we actually see the ring acting. We've seen it indirectly before. We saw it with Bilbo in that first scene. But this is the first time, but in that scene, we saw it from the outside. That is, we, we weren't really told what was going on inside Bilbo's head. We saw his actions and we heard his words, um, but we didn't get inside Bilbo's head. Here we do get inside Frodo's head. So this is our first clear picture of what it's like to be a person with the ring acting on you, right? And notice what it does. Notice what the ring does. The ring, um, he starts admiring its beauty, right? Um, it looked very fair and pure, and Frodo thought how rich and beautiful was its color, how perfect was its roundness. Look at this. It, this it's an admirable thing and altogether precious, that those thoughts come from the ring, I think, are perfectly obvious, right? Um, this is how the ring acts upon the mind. It's one way, certainly, in which the ring acts upon the mind. It can put thoughts in your mind. It can lead you to think things, right? Now, I don't think that this is necessarily um, completely external, in the sense of, like, this being a thought wholly alien to Frodo himself. Frodo does find the ring admirable and precious. Um, and everything he's ever heard about it suggests both of those things, right? Even just the story about how it made Bilbo invisible and facilitated all his adventures, right, and kept him safe, uh, that's both admirable and it is precious. A magical invisibility ring is a pretty darn precious thing, right? Um, very useful possession, as the narrator says in The Hobbit. Um, so, yeah, very... So he's... So the ring... But the ring is taking this moment to emphasize that line of thinking in his mind, right? Um, oh, you're thinking about destroying me, right? You're thinking about throwing me away, throwing me into the fire. Don't you want me? Don't you admire me, right? Um, yeah, so I, 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 I do think um, uh, we can see the ring influencing his thoughts directly here. Notice it's not a dialogue, Right, he's not hearing the ring speak to him. His own, he's not saying anything to himself. Um, it's just leading his thoughts in this particular way, right? Um, and then we see the division of his will. That's the other effect, and that we saw with Bilbo, 
right? Whether it be the yes and no thing when he was actually verbalizing it, or whether it be the pulling his hand back and dropping the envelope off the mantelpiece thing, right? Where even his own, you know, his, like the, as if the connection between his will and his, his actions, right, was being interfered with forcibly, right? And we see the same thing. Frodo intends to throw it in the fire, but his hand doesn't do that. His hand instead puts it back in his pocket. So we can see that the ring interferes with the will and interferes with the will in a fairly direct way. So we have got the the thoughts and images in his head. We have the actual interference with his will and what he, like, makes his body do, right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Dora Martin says, you know, the, the ring is saying, I'm too pretty to die. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's exactly, yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, so this is a really, so, you know, we'll, we'll come, we'll, we'll remember this moment as we're remembering Bilbo's yes and no moment uh, to sort of see the ring acting over time. Gandalf says, there is only one way to find the cracks of doom in the depths of Oradru in the Fire Mountain and cast the ring in there if you really wish to destroy it, to put it beyond the grasp of the enemy forever. This is the only way. This is it. That's the only... The only way that the ring can be beyond the grasp of the enemy forever is if it's destroyed, and it can only be destroyed in the depths of the Fire Mountain. I do really wish to destroy it, cried Frodo. Frodo asserts his will, right? His will just failed him to throw the ring into his fireplace, Right? But he asserts his will. No, I wanted that my desire is for it to be destroyed. Or, well, to have it destroyed. I'm not made for perilous quests. I wish I'd never seen the ring. Why did it come to me? Why was I chosen? Um, so, uh, Frodo deflects the whole, like, option that Gandalf is giving, right? Right. The only thing that, it can, be, that can be done here is to throw the ring, is for you to throw the ring in the fire. Right? Uh, it's like, why well, you know, not me? Right? Of course, he's still terrified. Right? He's still afraid. He's still. I wish I had never seen it. I wish it n- had never happened. Right? We still see all that stuff. Um, but of course, I am not made for perilous quest. It's perfectly true. Right? Um, why was I chosen? Such questions cannot be answered," said Gandalf. Right? We can see what destiny chooses. We don't know destiny's rationale. Right? You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess, not for power or wisdom at any rate. This is one of my favorite Gandalfisms. Right? Uh, talk about reassuring, right? So somebody says, um, um, somebody says, okay, so uh, why was I chosen? Why, why did fate choose me out for this thing? It's like, oh, well, it's not because you're any better than anybody else, right? It's not because you have useful skills or anything. I mean, you'd think if you're on and cheer somebody up, right? The natural reaction would be to say, hey, um, okay, so you were chosen. You know what? Because you're good enough and you're strong enough and doggone it, people like you, right? I mean, uh, like that's the, that would be the, 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 the natural impulse, Right? Uh, to say, it's okay, Frodo, you can do this. You can do this, and I'll help. Right? That's not at all what he says. Right? Instead, it's like the opposite. I can't possibly do it. No, no, you really can't. Uh, why were you chosen? Well, it's not because you're qualified, because obviously you're not, right? Um, and that's uh, kind of funny, right? I mean, I think that's kind of a funny piece of counter-reassurance that Gandalf gives here. Um, but actually, I kind of think in a sense... If you think it through, which 
Frodo, I think, is going to take a while to think through, it is a little bit reassuring, right? Um, you are not chosen because of for power or wisdom, right? For any merit that others do not possess. If he had been, you know, if Gandalf were saying to him, you're the only qualified person to do this, right? You are unique, uniquely qualified for this position. Um, then there'd be pressure on him, right? You've got to live up to, your expe- to, to our expectations, right? You've got to... Um, don't screw it up, Frodo. Don't fail, right? Because you're the only one who can do this, so you better... You and he says, you know, actually, it's not about you. It's not about... You were chosen for this, but it's not about you, right? It's about the one who's chosen you, right? It's about if that other power chose you, it didn't choose you because you were so awesome you could easily handle it. It chose you because it has a plan to do it through you. So don't worry about it, right? Um, let Leave it to the power who's got the plan, right? Uh, who can see all things, which you can't. Um, but of course, Frodo still has a role, right? But you have been chosen, and you must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. You are in the passive place. You have been chosen, right? And so, but you do have to choose still to respond to that, right? Um, Exactly, Tim. Um, uh, Being chosen is the doom part of the equation. All that we have to do is to decide how to respond. Exactly. Just like he was saying before, um, that is the free will part of the equation. So yes, this is Gandalf saying, are you predestined to do this? Yep. Uh, Do you have free will that you need to exert? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You must therefore use such strength and heart and wits as you have. Right. Um, Now, of course, Frodo is uniquely qualified. Right. Um, uh, In part by his humility. Right. I am not made for perilous quests is exactly the response that he should be having. Right? No. <clears throat> if you thought you were good enough to handle this, if you were like, leave it to me, Gandalf. I'm glad the Ring of Power fell to my hands because I am obviously the most qualified person to handle it. There'd be a problem. Right? Um, but uh, that isn't the situation. Right? Um, but there is an out. Right? Frodo has one more card to play in trying to get out of this. But I have so little of any of these things. You are wise and powerful. Will you not take the ring? Ho ho! The perfect solution! Right? And of course, this is the only obvious alternative. You know, when Gandalf was all like, there was no choice, right? I know it was dangerous for you, but what else could I do? Well, there is one thing you could have done, which is take it your own self, right? Take the danger on yourself. Gandalf, wouldn't that have been self-sacrificing? Wouldn't that have been, you know, being a team player, Gandalf, right? Why did you leave it to me instead of taking it yourself? Um... And anyway, you're far better qualified, obviously, so why don't you take it, right? No, cried Gandalf, springing to his feet. With that power, I should have power too great and terrible, and over me the ring would gain a power still greater and more deadly. His eyes flashed, and his face was lit as by a fire within. Do not tempt me, for I do not wish to become like the Dark Lord himself. Yet the way of the ring to my heart is by pity, pity for weakness, and the desire of strength to do good. Do not tempt me. I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe, unused. The wish to wield it would be too great for my strength. I shall have such need of it. Great perils lie before me. Now, is this 
Gandalf's moment of temptation? In a sense, yeah. I mean, I don't think... I don't necessarily think that this is Gandalf being, like, you know, like, sweating, reaching out his hand and drawing it back and being like, no, no, I can't, I shouldn't. But it's closer. It's close to that, right? Notice his reaction. Notice his flashing eyes and his face lit with fire. Notice him springing to his feet. Notice his repetition, do not tempt me, right? He seems to take that really seriously, right? Um, There is temptation here, um, and he knows he can't handle it. Exactly, Tim. Gandalf is admitting admitting he's weaker than Frodo in this sense, right? Um, The pity for... There's, 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 there is an irony there, right? I, 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 I don't think I could resist it, right? I don't think I could, um, uh, I don't think that I could hold off from taking the ring, from using the ring. The wish to wield it would be too great for my strength. Um, I'm stronger, yes, but that over me the ring would gain a power still greater and more deadly. Um, The power that the ring would have, and I think this is an important thing to recognize, the power that the ring has is dependent upon the strength of the wielder, but that means the power to tempt, not just the power that you can wield with it if you take it up. The power that the ring, if Gandalf had the ring, it would have a greater power, a greater power to tempt him. Not just that he is more susceptible than Frodo. He is, in a sense. He has different temptations than Frodo. But, um, but more, there is... Uh, uh, I, I think the idea that the ring actually... Um, uh, the, the power that the ring would be able to exert to tempt him would be greater than the power that it has to exert to tempt Frodo. We know that this is true. We know that the ring will change. The ring's power to tempt Frodo will change over time both as they get closer uh, uh, to Mordor and to Mount Doom, but also as Frodo himself changes. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, so this is a bad option, Right. He went to the window and drew aside the curtains and the shutters. Sunlight streamed back again into the room. Sam passed along the path outside, whistling. And now, said the wizard, turning back to Frodo, the decision lies with you, but I will always help you. He laid his hand on Frodo's shoulder. I will help you bear this burden as long as it is yours to bear. But we must do something soon. The enemy is moving. Now, isn't this a little bit odd, right? Um, oh, and Caterona, uh, uh, I agree. Uh, uh, that's worth going back for a second. Notice G- Gandalf's emphasis on pity again. Caterona, I meant to talk about that, and, 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 I, and I missed it. Thank you for reminding me. The way of the ring to my heart is by pity. Pity for weakness and the desire of strength to do good. Right? Um, because, of course, that's the next step. Pity by itself isn't enough. Right? If pity doesn't lead you to action, if you just feel bad for somebody, that's good to feel bad for the suffering of another. Um, but if that's all you do, that falls short of really good, right? Really good is to feel pity and to act on that pity, to help to work to alleviate the suffering of the one whose suffering you perceive. And Gandalf has that, right? But that is the root of the ring to his heart through that pity. He does perceive the weakness of others. He wants to help them. The desire of more strength to do more good, that is the path of temptation 
into the ring. And so, yes, it, it is really, uh, really interesting that we see both. It was pity that preserved Bilbo, but it's pity that would be the uh, root of temptation for Gandalf. Anyway, um, Gandalf clears the air here, right? He walks away, lets the sunlight back in, and says, now the decision lies with you. Remember, he's just said to Frodo, it's only one choice. There's only one thing that can be done, right? We can't get rid of the ring. We can't unmake the ring. You can't give the ring to anybody else. It has to be destroyed. It can only be destroyed in Mordor. Well, there aren't so many options, right? Frodo, you've got to take the ring and at least start with it on the way to Mordor is pretty much the only option. And yet, he turns uh, to Frodo and insists, the decision lies with you. But I will always help you. I'm here. I'm here to support you, but you have to choose. He will not let Frodo remember that image at the beginning of Bilbo running out, being swept away by adventure, right? Running down the path without his pocket handkerchief. That can't be Frodo. Frodo can't... Do, remember in chapter, the beginning of chapter 2 of The Hobbit when we're told, like, Bilbo, when you know, the, the narrator says, to the end of his days, Bilbo could never remember how he ended up, you know, down there at the Green Dragon, you know, pelting down the lane. He, he, could, he, 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 he couldn't even account for how he ended up there. It just kind of happens. The moment of decision, the real moment of decision... I shall go on this adventure. Um, he put his foot in it the night before, right? When he went in and, uh, uh, you know, pardon me if I have overheard words that you were saying. Um, but his actual departure, you know, the moment of action escapes him, right? Frodo has to choose. And he has to choose knowing, unlike Bilbo, he has to choose knowing what it means, right? Um, the decision lies with you. Immediately, I will always help you. I will help you bear this burden as long as it is yours to bear. He already calls it a burden. He acknowledges this is a burden. A burden has been laid on you. I'll help you carry it as long as it's yours to carry. But you have to carry it. You have to choose. We must do something soon. The enemy is moving. There was a long silence. Gandalf sat down again and puffed at his pipe as if lost in thought. His eyes seemed closed, but under the lids he was watching Frodo intently. Frodo gazed fixedly at the red embers on the hearth until they filled all his vision, and he seemed to be looking down into profound wells of fire. He was thinking of the fabled cracks of doom and the terror of the lonely of the fiery mountain. Terror of the lonely mountain. It's a different terror. And the terror of the fiery mountain. Um... Thinking of the Hobbit, thinking back to chapter one of the Hobbit, remember the moment when Bilbo's listening to the dwarf song and he has that moment of uh, imaginative experience, right? Uh, when he begins to feel the desire of the hearts of dwarves, awake, dwarves awaken within him and to imagine himself carrying a sword instead of a walking stick that first time that Bilbo is swept into this world of adventure. And then remember, he looks out the window and he sees a fire off in the distance and the fire shakes him out of it. Right? brings him back to reality, it scares him straight. Right, He imagines dragons coming down and landing on the hill, and then he's immediately Mr. Bilbo Baggins Underhill again, Right, of Bag End Underhill. Um, Frodo, in this moment, right, at the, you know, as the decision lies with him, is staring into the red embers on the hearth, staring into the fire, staring into the very embers into which he just failed to throw the ring 
a couple minutes ago, right? And the fire is filling all of his vision. So here he has this sort of imaginative experience as well, right? Thinking of the fabled cracks of doom and the terror of the fiery mountain. He doesn't imagine adventure coming in to the Shire. He imagines himself leaving the Shire and going to, indeed, losing himself in the cracks of doom and the terror of the fiery mountain. It is far more terrifying. Again, there's fear involved, just as there was fear in Bilbo's vision, right? But the fear doesn't startle him out of it, right? Where does he end up from it? Well, said Gandalf at last, what are you thinking about? Have you decided what to do? No, answered Frodo, coming back to himself out of darkness, and finding to his surprise that it was not dark, and that out of the window he could see the sunlit garden. Or perhaps, yes, as far as I understand what you have said, I suppose I must keep the ring and guard it, at least for the present, whatever it may do to me. Um, there's his choice. There's his decision. And notice how he frames it. I suppose I must, right? I acknowledge the burden that has been laid upon me. I have to do this. So I guess I will, whatever it may do to me. Whatever it may do, it will be slow, slow to evil if you keep it with that purpose, said Gandalf. Um, so Frodo's first reaction, right? His, uh, his first, the first element of his choice. He's decided, in a, notice how in a sense anticlimactic his decision is. Again, Gandalf said there's only one thing to do. Frodo, in the context of making his choice, points out the choice has already been made, right? The burden has been laid upon me. So, like, to go on carrying a weight that's been put on your back is not exactly a choice, and yet it is a choice, right? Um, uh, it's a very important choice. In what spirit does he take up the ring? And that's what Gandalf immediately emphasizes, right? I suppose I must keep the ring and guard it, at least for the present, whatever it may do to me. Everything about that sentence is perfect from you know, for, for Frodo, right? I suppose I must keep the ring. I acknowledge the destiny that's been laid upon me and I accept it. I'm taking up the ring to guard it, at least for the present. I'm not claiming to be its permanent owner. I'm not laying claim to it, right? I'm not saying, it is mine! I'm just saying, it's at least, at least for the present, right? For now, until we get there's a better option. And I'm only keeping it in order to guard it, right? Not to claim it, not to use it. Whatever it may do to me. Acknowledging that it's going to harm me, um, and that that's going to be bad, but, you know, I accept that, right? Um, that, that element of self-sacrifice in Gandalf emphasizes that choice makes a difference. This seems to be one of the reasons that Gandalf was pushing him to this. He could have just, oh, a while back, been like, okay, this is what we need to do. He could have even said to, to Frodo the night before, let's get out of here, I'll explain later, <laughs> right? But he doesn't. Frodo chooses... Whatever it may do, it will be slow. Slow to evil if you keep it with that purpose. Um, the malice of the ring, the effect of the ring on Frodo, will be decreased by this attitude in which Frodo is picking it up. I hope so, said Frodo, but I hope that you may find some other better keeper soon. But in the meanwhile, it seems that I am a danger, a danger to all that live near me. I cannot keep the ring and stay here. I ought to leave Bag End, leave the Shire, leave everything and go away. He sighed. Of course, he then responds um, by a greater act of self-sacrifice, right? Um, again, summary. What has he chosen, right? The choices that he's made. One, 
to guard the ring, knowing who's looking for it, right? The Dark Lord is coming after you personally to get his ring. So when you when you say I'm going to keep the ring and guard it, it doesn't mean against you know inquisitive neighbors, right? Um, he doesn't really know what it means by experience, but he knows he's he's heard the really bad news, right? But he nevertheless chooses to keep the ring and guard it. Second, to accept whatever it may do to him, right? To, again, to acknowledge it's going to do me harm. And I know that, and I take that risk. I take that responsibility. And third, to think of others before himself, right? Uh, to leave everything, to uh, give up everything that he has in order to protect other people, right? Um, he has... Uh, 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 I get so it's very self-sacrificial, and it's all done in the context of humility, Right? I hope that you may find some other better keeper soon. I don't think I'm worthy of this. I don't think I'm going to do a good job. But it's been this burden has been placed upon me, and I will choose to bear it. At the end of the day, Frodo makes the best possible choice anybody could have asked, and in exactly the best possible way. You know, he's had his moments as he's been responding to this and processing it and, and reacting to it. But at the end of the day, he does the best possible thing. Now, why does he sigh? Is he sighing because he's thinking about leaving Bag End, leaving the Shire, leaving everything and going away? That seems possible. Um, but look at where it goes right after. Let's see. I should like to save the Shire if I could. Though there have been times when I thought the inhabitants too stupid and dull for words, and I felt that an earthquake or an invasion of dragons might be good for them, just like Bilbo's fantasy, remember? But I don't feel like that now. I feel that as long as the Shire lies behind, safe and comfortable, I shall find wandering more bearable. I shall know that somewhere there is a firm foothold, even if my feet cannot stand there again. The sigh seems to be a kind of transition, right? Not just a... I shall love the Shire and hate to leave it. Um, he's been wanting to leave it. Remember, he's been uneasy. He's been restless. He's been looking at maps and wondering what lay beyond their edges. And he's admitting here, he, he thinks that the inhabitants of the Shire are too stupid and dull for words sometimes. Um, he's not like, oh, how could I ever leave the beloved Shire? That's not his perspective at all. He's often thought of going away. Um, the transition, in a sense, is like, you know, that sigh seems to me like, mm, and now I'm rethinking the Shire, right? Now, from this new perspective that I've been given, right, of, uh, of, uh, of looking, at, um, looking at the Shire as I'm about to leave it, right, and to try to protect it, um, to want to, to try to save it, I, uh, I acknowledge that the Shire, you know, I don't feel the same way anymore about the Shire. I don't feel dismissive. I don't feel impatient. Um... I feel that as long as the Shire lies behind, safe and comfortable, I shall find wandering more bearable. It won't be like a sacrifice, or as much of a sacrifice anyway. Somewhere a firm foothold exists, right? My feet can't stand there, but others can. Um, uh, Wayaloff says that uh, Frodo's been a bit of a snob, in a sense, yeah? Yeah, in a sense. Um, uh, he has the, sort of, the, the Bilbo perspective, right? Um... Uh, the wider perspective of the world outside the Shire that Bilbo has kind of given to him, right? And um, the parochialness and simplicity and uh, stupidity, you know, in a sense, of the hobbits has annoyed him, 
right? Um, and yeah, in a sense, that was snobbish. And now he sees it very differently. Um, of course, I have sometimes thought of going away, but I imagine that as a kind of holiday. A series of adventures like Bilbo's are better, ending in peace. But this would mean exile, a flight from danger into danger, drawing it after me. And I suppose I must go alone, if I am to do that and save the Shire. But I feel very small and very uprooted and, well, desperate. The enemy is so strong and terrible. He now, of course, squarely faces the prospect of going there and not back again. Right? Um, he's... You know, his, his adventure is going to be like Bilbo's. Um, he feels desperate. And yet, he did not tell Gandalf, but as he was speaking, a great desire to follow Bilbo flamed up in his heart, to follow Bilbo, and even perhaps to find him again. It was so strong that it overcame his fear. He could almost have run out there and then down the road without his hat, as Bilbo had done on a similar morning long ago. And here the narrator brings us back to the beginning, back to the frame, right? Um, that we got with Gandalf sitting by the window after breakfast, right? Remembering that this it was on, on a morning just like this that Bilbo went running down the lane without his hat, right? And Bilbo is and Frodo is suddenly filled with that same desire. Notice after he's made the decision, after he's acknowledged the consequences of that decision, after he's like, "I'm giving up the Shire, I'm sacrificing the Shire in order to save it. I'm going to." You know, I've thought of going away, and I but I realized my thoughts about it were completely naive. This is not a vacation, right? This is uh, this is going into exile. Um, the en- the enemy that's pursuing me is strong and terrible, and I feel desperate. And in the midst of that, desire flames up in his heart. Desire to follow Bilbo, so strong that it overcomes his fear, and he could almost have recapitulated the beginning of the Hobbit, just like Gandalf was thinking about at the beginning. Why? Why? Um, Where does that desire come from? Why the sudden flaming up of that desire? Earlier, like a month and a half ago, when we were talking about the beginning of chapter two, we were talking about his desire, his dreams of strange mountains that he had, and his desire, his restlessness and his desire... Um, and the question that we were asking at the time was, where does that come from? Does that come from, um, uh, does that come from the ring? Is it a temptation? Is that the ring acting on him because the ring is trying to get back to, you know, wants to uproot him, right? So that he'll go off wandering and he'll have a chance to get back to Sauron, maybe. Um, or is it, um, something else entirely? Is, is that dream sent by some other power, right? Um, and I think I was a little non-committal at the time, but I might have said I don't think it was the ring, and I don't. And this is why I don't. This passage is what makes me think that the desire that he was experiencing, the restlessness he was experiencing before, was not from the ring. Um, and it's interesting because in the original drafts, Tolkien explicitly said that it was. That is to say, Bingo, which was his original name, um, in some of the notes that Tolkien wrote 
when he was like thinking about how to begin the story and what effect the ring could have, uh, the idea that the ring produced a kind of restlessness and drove them to travel um, was a thing that he threw out there that he was considering. At the end of the day, I don't think that that's where he's ended up. I think he's reversed that by the time we get to this, and this is why I think that. Um, this desire, this joy to go, this seems to me like an affirmation of the choice that he has made. It is his destiny to go, and he has been prepared to go. Remember what part of Frodo's mind says when he says, perhaps I too, you know, will cross the river someday? The answer was always, some part of him always said, not yet, right? I think that this desire for mountains, this desire for travel, this desire for following in Bilbo's footsteps, both figuratively and literally, is a desire that is placed within Frodo. It is part of the calling, part of the preparation for the calling that he's been calling is a calling is what he has, right? And in this moment, when he has chosen, when he has embraced that calling, like an affirmation, it immediately comes. Um, first, you have to choose, and after you do choose you will be made to desire the thing that you have already chosen. You'll be rewarded with pleasure in, desire for, the thing that you have already chosen, right? Um, Notice, the reason I don't think this is the ring, he's not being tempted, right? Temptation comes beforehand, right, to try to influence the decision. This does not come in like temptation. It comes in like reward for the decision, Right? as a consequence of the decision. Since you chose well, um, I will stir up in you this desire that I've been stirring up in you already. Um, but um, anyway, so uh, we will... Um, we leave it there. Now, one more. One more. I'll be very brief with one more. My dear Frodo, exclaimed Gandalf, hobbits really are amazing creatures, as I've said before. You can learn all there is to know about their ways in a month, and yet after a hundred years they can still surprise you at a pinch. I hardly expected to get such an answer, not even from you. But Bilbo made no mistake in choosing his heir, though he would have thought how important it would prove. I am afraid you are right. The ring will not be able to stay hidden in the Shire much longer, and for your own sake, as well as for others, you will have to go and leave the name of Baggins behind you. That name will not be safe to have outside the Shire or in the wild. I will give you a traveling name now. When you go, go as Mr. Underhill. But I don't think you need go alone. Not if you know of anyone you can trust, who would be willing to go by your side, and that you would be willing to take into unknown perils. But if you look for a companion, be careful in choosing, and be careful of what you say, even to your closest friends. The enemy has many spies and many ways of hearing. And we'll come back to that at the beginning of next time when we look at the conspir- when we look at the beginnings of the conspiracy. But I love Gandalf's reaction. Um, you know, he responds with amazement about hobbits in general, right? And I think in large part he's sparing Frodo's shyness here. Um, hobbits really are amazing creatures, right? Um, he, he's sparing his blushes, right? Frodo, instead of being like, Frodo, you are awesome! That was fantastic! You just made the best possible decision! I'm so proud of you! Right? Instead, he does the kind of understated British thing, right? Um, and, um, and, and, you know, hobbits really are amazing creatures, right? I hardly expected to get such an answer, not even from you. And that's a sort of a backhanded-ish compliment, right? 
Um, uh, Gandalf is all overpleased, right? This is just how he hoped it would go. This is exactly what he hoped that Frodo would do and say, this is working out perfectly, right? Um, uh, and but you're right, Lincoln. I, I think it, it it does apply to many other hobbits as well. I I, I don't I don't I don't mean he's being insincere about the generalization that he's making, um, but uh, but I think he's making the generalization because because uh, we're getting there now. And now Tony, yeah, we'll get to Sam. We'll get to Sam next time. I don't have time for Sam this week because obviously I'm not going to give short shrift to Sam's uh, 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 sort of bursting into the narrative at this point while coming in through the window. Um. Yeah, <laughs> good. Yeah, Tim also points out that Gandalf is also guarding Frodo from megalomania. Yeah, you don't want to, like, somebody whose humility is crucial to his success, you don't want to exactly go around puffing them up all the time. That's probably counterproductive. I can agree with that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Um, I, I should I should stop here. As I said, we'll pick up at the beginning um, with Gandalf's, um, with, uh, with Sam, with the intervention of Sam. We'll look at the, the whole conspiracy stuff and we'll use that as a transition uh, into uh, chapter three. Um, we'll be looking at, of course, the initial exchange, the, the initial plan uh, between Gandalf and, and, and Frodo. That'll be sort of our, our the conspiracy and the plan. Um, uh, <laughs> well, Whale off, that is awesome. <laughs> Whale off uh, refers to the infenestration of Sam. That is the best, of course, that it would, uh, infenestration as the opposite of defenestration. Defenestration has long been a favorite word of mine. Um, the idea that uh, there's a verb defenestrate, which means to throw something out the window. Uh, uh, you know, like your dirty dishes, uh, which you should defenestrate whenever possible if you're on the second floor, as we learned in The Return of the Shadow. But, um, so, yeah, the idea of infenestration. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that is my new favorite word. That's the new word of the week. Infenestration. Uh, I, 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 I got to go tweet that. But anyway. anyway um, uh, <laughs> okay. It's just the title of the next episode. Maybe so. Maybe so. Um, but uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. So we'll get to that next time. I should say next time. Um, next week. I'm going to be on the road and I've been debating this because my original plan was to try to do class anyway. I've done class on the road before the broadband demands of this production are a little bit high though. And I'm worried. I'm worried that my hotel internet is not going to handle it. And I would rather just postpone it than like try to do it and have it fail and everything. So, um, I, um, I think, um, I think the best thing to do is just going to be to postpone. Um, so I think we're not going to have class next week because I'm traveling with my family next week. Um, I will still have Return of the Shadow because it's much less demanding. It's the game and streaming the game that I'm worried about. Running the game and doing the stream at the same time are demanding uh, on uh, on the the, um, uh, the the bandwidth. So I think I'm probably I'm, I'm not going to try to do that from the hotel. Um, I'll still have the Return of the Shadow next week, but we won't have Exploring the Lord of the Rings next week. But we'll be back the week after that, um, the first week of March, right? Yes, first week of March, uh, March seventh, I believe it is, if I remember correctly. Um, I think. <laughs> I yes, remember. that's right. That's, that's right. right. The seventh. Okay, yes, March seventh. All right. Yes. Good. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm not looking at the calendar. So, um, yeah. So uh, March seventh, we'll be back, and we'll do the beginning of um, 
uh, the end of chapter two, the beginning of chapter three. And, uh, and Trish, we'll which server? Landreval. Thank you. That's what I was just asking. So we'll be on Landreval uh, two weeks from today. And now it's time for our field trip. So let's Yay! let's do that. Uh, let us go, let us go with all of uh, you friendly dwarves here, and let's go visit Arid Lewin. And elves and oh yeah, anyone is welcome. Yeah, this is not exclusively <laughs> dwarves who may attend. So, um, anyone who I, you can get a horse from the uh, West Stable Master, West Gate Stable Master. Yes. Or if you have a port, of course, I'm sure many of you have ports. If there are any hunters who are willing to port people to Thorns Gate, would you join me up on stage, and then that way anybody who needs a port can send you a tell. Yeah, like if you don't have swift travel or something, it would be probably easier yeah, to be ported. Yeah, if you if you don't want to, if you don't have the stable open or something. Slow horse to Thorns Gate would take some time from here. All right, Thorsland Black Axe, yay! All right. And other than that, I think everybody else, anybody that can go, um, can be on their way, right? Are you gonna? Yeah, yeah, I will, I will, I will, I will head out. So let's, uh, yeah, those of you who are gonna go to the stable master with me, let's head out over here. Anybody who needs to port, uh, please send Thorsland a tell, and he will get you fellowed up and and get you ported to Thorns Gate. And also Lenorian, thank you so much. Great. All right. And I'll just stay here to make sure everybody gets gone. All right. Off we go. Down the scholar's stair as usual. And let's just meet, let's meet in Freren's court. What do you need? So we're going to the Arid Luin. Arid Luin, of course, means the Blue Mountains. I'll move out of the way here. So if you've joined, if you're still in the Lorehall and you've joined a fellowship, uh, get close to the person who's invited you so that the, so you'll be in range when they port you all right well I think we're good I think we're okay um, we have uh, we have one let me just check with her and see Okay. <clears throat> I guess we're good. Yeah, good. So Thorsten's good. Okay, that's right. Okay. Okay, so Lenorian, I think we're okay. I know that um, my friend Fossick there is AFK, but um, I think we're good to go. So if you would like, in fact, Lenorian, if you would invite me to a fellowship, you could port me. There we go. So you guys are all good, and I see that Buddha agrees. Yeah. 
<laughs> so there we are. Okay. Um, first of all, I would just like to point out that while I was wandering around earlier today, looking around Thorn's Gate, I just no- I never noticed this like huge, slightly creepy Mount Everest or uh, Mount Everest Mount Rushmore style dwarf face in the side of the hill over here. Uh, I don't know how I never noticed that before. I think I just never looked up. Um, but I was kind of looking at the whole vista here like this, like I'm showing right now on my screen, and I noticed this, like, <laughs> huge creepy dwarf face that's been carved into the mountain over there. I'd never noticed that before. Um, and it makes me wonder... makes me wonder who that is. Of course, dwarves are really hard to identify. I mean, like, one big bearded face kind of looks like many other big bearded faces. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, this raises a bunch of questions in my mind. Um, my questions that this huge dwarf face on the mountainside raises in my mind is, first of all, who carved it? Where did it come from? Um, I, uh, you know, how old is it? Because that's the thing about Thorin's Gate. In theory, Thorin's Gate is new. It's quite new. Just, I mean, like less than a couple hundred years old. Because um, remember the story here is that so Th- um, Thror returned to the mountain, right? The elves, the, dwar- the elves, the dwarves went over to that region a long time back, right? Um, they were living in the Iron Hills. Uh, they, uh, uh, it was, uh, uh, it was, so Thran, the old, founded Erebor, and then they left it for a while, but then Thorin, or Thror returned to it, Thorin's grandfather, uh, and reestablished the Lonely Mountain, reestablished Erebor, uh, sort of the center of the Kingdom of the Dwarves, though, of course, the traditional home of the, uh, of the line of Durin, which is what Thror's people are, um, was of course Moria, was Hazadum, but that's been abandoned for a long time for Balrog-related issues, uh, and so they've been... So in a sense already, Erebor was their home in exile. But it's been, but it was their home for a long time. Um, then of course Smaug came. After Smaug came, the refugees uh, from the Lonely Mountain were living it rough. Uh, Thorin says in The Hobbit that they were uh, they, they were uh, forced to do blacksmith work or even coal mining uh, to make their living. But uh, he, Thorin, that is, acknowledges that at this point they're not too badly off uh, and have a bit set by, um, uh, and he fingers his gold, the gold chain around his neck, right? He, he's got some bling. Uh, be, you know, to show how not completely destitute they are, but they still want to get their own treasure back. That's the whole premise of Chapter 1 of The Hobbit. Um, in the expanded quest for Erebor that you can read in Unfinished Tales, um, Thorin invites Gandalf back to his halls in the Blue Mountain. So he, he does have halls in the Blue Mountain, and he invites Gandalf back to them, and he speaks slightingly of them. You know, he's like, oh, by, they're barely worthy to be called halls. You know, it's just, it's, they're a really minor deal. They're nothing like Erebor. Now, I don't entirely trust Thorin when he says this. That is to say, I think that Thorin is being modest. Uh, you know, when he says that, like, his halls in the Blue Mountains are nothing, I don't think that actually literally means um, uh, that, um, 
that he thinks that you know that they're tiny hovels and 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 not worth looking at. They're probably pretty cool. Um, he just, you know, compared to his homeland, he really wants to return to Erebor and reclaim his uh, father's treasure and wealth. Um, and so they're clearly also wealthy, but not nearly as we're not talking Thror's horde wealthy, right? So those statements I, I take as a kind of a dwarvish humility and what's more emphasis on how great is the treasure that's been lost in the kingdom to which he wants to return, by contrast. However... Um, I was very surprised. I think of all of the intro areas in the game, Thorin's Gate is the one that surprised me most. Well, shocked, actually. I think I would go so far as to say shocked uh, when I came to Thorin's Gate here uh, because it is so much bigger than I had ever imagined. Um, And this leads me to an interesting question, um, which that big old stone face in the mountainside um, made me think of is that I suspect that in depicting Thorin's gate the way that they're doing, uh, the Lotro folks are doing more than just depicting the halls in the Blue Mountain that Thorin mentions in The Hobbit and are very briefly described, not really described, um, alluded to in more depth uh, in uh, in the quest of Erebor, I think they're doing other things. Um, here's I'll lay out for you what I think, what I suspect them of here. Um, there's a reason that Thorin ends up in the Blue Mountains. Um, it's not just like a random mountain range that he ended up in. Uh, the Misty Mountains would have been a good deal closer. Uh, the Iron Hills makes sense. His cousin Dan returned to the Iron Hills. Um, why did Thorin go to the Blue Mountains in the first place? Why did many but not all of the refugees of, 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 of Erebor end up in the Blue Mountains? The answer to that question is that the Blue Mountains are a dwarf homeland place. Um, this is a stronghold of dwarves, or there are strongholds of dwarves here in the Blue Mountains. Um, in the Silmarillion, of course, we read of two great dwarvish strongholds in the Blue Mountains, uh, uh, Nogrod and Belagost, to give them their elvish names. Uh, and uh, I'm not suggesting that Thorin's Gate here is one of those two, that this is either Nogrod or Belagost, but of course it's not a coincidence that they end up back in the Blue Mountains because the Blue Mountains are a traditional homeland of the dwarves. We're told, in The Hobbit we're told, that the el- the dwarves that were involved in those early wars with the with the elves, namely the dwarves of Nogrod and of Belagost, were not Thorin's people, right? And in the history as it is fully constructed when we get to the Lord of the Rings and the Tale of Years and everything, Moria has already been established. Moria is, you, know, you can tell from the Song of Durin, Moria is already there, in the first age, right? So before, you know, ere the fall of Nargothrond or Gondolin, Durin is there, set up in Khazad-dûm, right? Um, and he doesn't even, you know, when uh, when the elves come, you know, when Galadriel comes back across the mountains, uh, she encounters the dwarves. They've already been there for millennia, right? So that's the history as it, you know, in Lord of the Rings time, that's the history of Thorin's people. That means that the dwarves of Nogrod and Belagost were two of the other six clans of dwarves. They, therefore, had strongholds here. Now, those strongholds have fallen. Nogrod and Belagost don't survive. 
Um, so those clans of dwarves have lost their homelands. So Nograd and Belagost were to those clans what um, what Khazad-dum was to uh, to to Durin's folk. So. Um, this is my theory. My theory is that when the Lotro folks decide to depict Thorin's Gate, they decide to, pick, to depict this dwarvish stronghold uh, in the mountains over here in the Blue Mountains, they're like, dwarvish strongholds, Blue Mountains. You know, I bet when Thorin and the refugees of Erebor went to the Blue Mountains, they went there because there were already um, uh, dwarvish constructions there, that there were dwarvish halls which they could take and claim and expand. Um, this was a place where, where they, they could. there probably are still other dwarves there of other clans, right, who might take them in um, uh, and, and help them to get established. Uh, we know that the kingdom of Moria is very spread out, right? Uh, it's not just, like, localized in one spot. Perhaps this was a spot where there was a, you know, a, a southern... Ex- you know, expansion or outpost of, you know, from the kingdom of, of, uh, Belagost or something. We don't really know. Right. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah. So, uh, I, I, I think, um, I think that this is, it's possible that they're suggesting that. And, and I, I, I see a certain amount of evidence for that. One piece of evidence I would point to, I think that that big old dwarf face in the mountain looks ancient to me. Um, I think the most creepy thing about it is what seems to be, am I right in thinking those are his fingers there? Is he holding something? The idea that like we can see his hand there, as if like this big dwarf face is peeking up over the mountains, is what kind of makes it uh, look a little um, uh, uh, funny to me. But he's probably holding something, like a hammer or an axe or something there, probably. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, anyway. Uh, so, but I think it looks ancient. I think the the way that this face is weathered, this was not made. That's not like Thorin or something, right? That was carved in the last few hundred years, right? That does not look less than two hundred years old. I suspect that that it doesn't look all sharp and clean like Mount Rushmore, right? Um, so I think this is an ancient statue. So therefore, I suggest that this area was an ancient place of dwarves, which had either which had been abandoned or whatever, or they came and they joined with other people here, and Thorin came to rule it, right? Um, so yeah, so I suspect that that's uh, um, that's what was going on here. So why is this uh, court note? So Tony, to answer the question you asked ages ago, uh, why is this? Um, uh, why is this court named Freren's court? Freren, of course, was the brother of Thorin. Uh, and if you look at the genealogy, you can see why. Um, Freren died at the Battle of Azanul Bazar. Um, so it was clearly in memory of his brother. Um, his brother's dead before this place is established. So um, his his brother... So, so clearly, uh, in order to... Um, uh, uh, in order to commemorate his brother who died, you know, nobly at the Battle of Azanul Bazar, he dedicates this court to him. Now, who this statue is, I don't know. It's Freren's court, right? So I'm assuming this has got to be Freren. Um, I can't imagine Thorin would put a statue of himself or people, other people would put a statue of, of Thorin here in Freren's court. Um, but I'm thinking probably it's Freren, in which case it's interesting that he's given a crown, right? Uh, he's depicted crowned. Which is kind of cool. I think that's really, I think that's really interesting. Um, but um, anyway, 
Uh, <laughs> Alpha says it's amusing uh, that everybody's assuming the dwarf on the mountain is a he. It's true. It could be a dwarf woman, I suppose. Uh, that could be a great matriarch of the dwarves, right? Can't rule it out. Absolutely right. The fact that it's bearded doesn't prove anything. I, I, I acknowledge this. Um, uh, anyway, so, but I think that this statue is probably, f- is probably Frerin, but again, I think it's interesting that it has a crown. I'm not sure what to do with that. Um, is this, like, sort of symbolic crown, right? That, like, my brother is crowned in, you know, in, like, through his honorable death or whatever. Um, <clears throat> uh, no, Thorin is the oldest Grim, actually, on the genealogy. So it's not like, as I was thinking that too, that was my first thought. Like, well, maybe it's like he should have been king, right? So here in this statue, he, no, he really shouldn't have been king. He was never in line to be king. Um, but, you know, he's sort of crowned with glory. And I guess it could be symbolic in that sense, maybe. Um, uh, but, um, but anyway, who knows? Okay, so uh, as you can see, this is a pretty grand hall. Uh, notice how the doorway stands. It's not just a doorway on the side of the mountain, right? Though it immediately goes back into the mountains. Um, we'll look at some of the other ruins and things a little bit later, but let's um, let's go in first. So let's uh, let's make our way into the hall itself. And I want to kind of be looking around as we go for other um, sort of signs of the age of this building. Does this look like a building that's, you know, 5,000 years old? Or does it look like construction that's a few hundred years old? Some of it obviously is going to be recent, right? Thorn has moved in here. So I'm just kind of looking around here. Uh, I like this court up here. Um this kind of grand entry that we get. Again, it's not just a gate into the mountainside. Um, This is much more sort of built out. Um, The whole way that this interacts with the exterior terrain is very different, for instance, than we see with Moria, right? Um, Which is another thing that leads me to think this is not a mountain stronghold, exactly, in the same way that Moria was, right? Um, It's just kind of an interesting difference to me. This whole huge cobbled court that we get is unlike anything we see in Moria. The doors, uh, which have already been opened. There we go. Uh, They've got mountains on them here. Um, I'm not sure which mountains these are meant to be, whether they be misty mountains or blue mountains. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. They're not Erebor, which is interesting, um, which you kind of might suspect. Nor do they seem to be the three mountains of Moria. Um, Those would, you would think, if Thorin is going to have gates uh, made uh, in which there's... um, uh, you know, on which these mountains feature, it would be one of the two, right? But we don't, we don't see that. Now, when we come in, we see first of all, it's just enormously high. Um, I love the light, the beam of light coming in, right? Not just through a random hole, but the way that this whole, uh, the whole focal point, right, of the entryway, leads not to a window, but to this one little jet of light that comes in through this sort of star area and uh, shines upon this enormous statue. Um, The statue is wielding a hammer, right? And from the size of the hammer, 
I suspect that this person is forging rather than um, fighting. Right. So what we are getting is a smith in mid-crafting rather than a warrior in the middle of battle. I mean, it is helmed, so it could be battle. Can't rule that out. Um, but even the very sort of ambiguity between those two things is kind of fun. Right? Um, so, uh, now how about this statue? How modern is this? Is this Thorin? This statue? I mean, that's of course the assumption. I always assumed it was. But maybe it isn't. It does look more worn than you would expect a megalithic statue to a, that was carved within the last couple hundred years and has been inside, right, out of the elements the whole time, would be. So maybe it's not. Maybe this is, um, you know, maybe this is Telkar of Nogrod. Ah. That would be awesome. The Great Smith, right? Uh, the one who made some of those awesome artifacts that, uh, who made the knife that Baron used to cut the Silmaril out of the Iron Crown of Morgoth, the one who made Aragorn's sword, right? Telkar rotted in the deeps of time, Aragorn is going to say. Um, I don't know. I like that idea. I mean, I'm just, uh, uh, I'm just uh, speculating here. Maven says, uh, you know, if you think about this as being a business enterprise, a smithying statue makes sense, as it's what customers would first see on entering. Yeah, it is kind of an advertisement. See, look, we're all about the Smithcraft. The, the, uh, Smithcraft. Um, anyway, yeah, so I have no idea who this is, and it's not labeled, right? I don't think it's ever labeled. Are we told? And I'm forgetting. You'll have to forgive me. Please do feel free to remind me um, of obvious things I've forgotten. I have taken a dwarf... Uh, I've done the completionist Arid Lewin from the Dwarvish point of view. I did that. Um, uh, uh, but it was a while ago now, and I've forgotten some of it. I've not done the intro area uh, with a dwarf uh, for quite some time. Uh, so if any of you remember details, if any of this stuff is revealed in detail in, in, in the intro area or any of the intro area quests that, uh, that I've forgotten, please do, please do remind me. Um, Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, Tiber says, in Hobbit towns we saw hobbits, it was full of hobbits going about their business. The dwarf hall seems empty in comparison. Well, sort of, I mean, there are, there are dwarves here, and we do see some dwarves wandering about, though it's, uh, there's one over here, this watcher, right? And uh, there's dwarves over in the wings, right? We've got the, we've got the, the I think the vault keepers over there, and the, uh, the auction hall folks over there. Um, but of course, keep in mind, this is not like the equivalent of the square in Mickle Delving exactly. This is like the equivalent of a chunk of the Shire. This place is huge inside here. This is more than just a building. Uh, this isn't like a building. It's like a whole area. Um, and we will see more dwarves on the other side. You're right, Echinacea. Um, but this this space is absolutely tremendously huge. Um, anyway, so... Yeah, so if nobody can tell me who that dwarf is, I'm going to say that it's uh, uh, that it's Telchar the Smith and move on. That's in my imagination who it is. So, okay. We now come into... 
what is obviously an approach, right? Notice how with the, the, the pillars framing this way and this long hallway with the stone, with the, the, you know, the lines of stone leading upward to those stairs and those stairs and this central seat here, right? So this is clearly what looks like the approach to a throne room. And we get some other things that's somewhat charming, right? How we get like this armorer over here has got his little armorer banner up and, and his little wooden shelving, Right, I mean, he looks like he's got, and this, by the way, more than anything else, convinces me that the the Thorin, the the dwarves of Thorin, have not constructed this from scratch. They're squatting here, right? And I don't mean that slightingly, but I mean, look, you got to think if these dwarves built this place from scratch, this guy would have designed something a little more permanent than this. He wouldn't be like here under the shadow of this great huge pillar. I've got my little wooden shelves, portable shelves, and my stool that I sit on. You wouldn't build a huge, enormous stone hall like this and then just give yourself a little three-legged wooden stool to squat on, would you? Right? I mean, he would have, uh, they would have built, they, they would have been like, and this is the place where the merchants shall be. This shall be the merchants' bazaar and we shall build a whole, like, area, right? Clearly, but all the merchants in this hall are just kind of standing around. See, look, there's another one over here. Right? If we go around the corner this way, Right there's a whole there's there's another dude right with his armor, his his uh, his his weaponry right and his weapon racks, you know and then we 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 come around this way and there's more of these folks but every time we see them here's more right, with their wooden stands and their little banners, right just standing on a stoop underneath a wall. Right they've got plenty of beer which is good right big racks of kegs so that's handy. Right, but none none of these things look permanent. Don't th don't these dwarves look like squatters, right? Rather than the architects of this place. If so, they didn't really build it with their present needs in mind exactly. Um, so that's another reason that I suspect this to be a converted stronghold of ancient dwarves. It's obviously a dwarvish stronghold. You can tell by the architecture that it's dwarvish, uh, but um, but it's it's. Um, I think not designed, not meant to be like the sen the complete home. Uh, you know, it's it's not like the mickle delving of the of the dwarves, right? What purpose this thing had before with the kingdom of dwarves who built it? I don't know. Was it you know some kind of southern outpost or something? I say southern because it used to extend further north than it does now. Um, but uh, I don't know. See, look at this over here. We're just like sitting next to barrels, right in the middle of nowhere. We're dancing over here. This is fun, right? So we're, we, we've got the minstrel over here, and we're doing some dancing on this. But, like, was this really constructed to be the dancing platform? Maybe it was constructed to be the dancing platform, right? I suppose that is possible. But, again, it just kind of doesn't seem like it. Yes, I encourage people to join in and dance. That seems the polite thing to do. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah, uh, this... Um, so, so again, this this all seems to me this is repurposed, right? There's really only two parts of this a whole place that don't seem to me repurposed and one is of course the throne room, or not throne room the whole thing is the throne room, but the throne itself. As I said, the approach is clearly regal, so obviously either like a local lord who is fairly important sat here, or this was meant to accommodate the king, but as we get up closer, we can see, notice there the mountains same mountains carved in the background. Um, blue mountains, maybe? 
And it's just like Nagrod or Belagost, I don't know. But of course, who we have up here, and I, I, I should probably dismount out of politeness, is Dwalin. So here's Dwalin ruling in Thorin's Gate. Um, is there any, you know, authority from the book to suggest that uh, Dwalin should be ruling here? No, no, it doesn't mention what Dwalin does. Um, but that's uh, not surprising, as very few of them are, you know, of very few of them are we told what their sort of final destiny was. Of course, Bowen and company, we learn. Um, but, um, but here's Dwalin. I love how Dwalin looks. Um, Dwalin is a humble ruler, right? Dwalin is not giving himself airs. No, no crown, right? Just his bald pate, right? Uh, he does have a rather lush and luxurious beard at this stage in his life, uh, which he keeps tucked into his belt, which is just how it's described in The Hobbit. Um, but um, notice he, he's wearing a, a fairly workaday leather you know, jerkin here. I mean, he's, he's, it's, this looks more like workman's apparel even than armor, right? This, like, you know, kind of beat up weather pants. Uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's in charge, right? He's, you know, standing here. Notice there isn't, I never even noticed that. There's not really a throne. There's nothing for him to sit on. Just a place for him to stand. That's interesting, isn't it? How about that? So this is a place to stand to receive people, but it's not a place where you hang out. That's interesting. Anyway, um, that they would decide, like, well, there are still dwarves that stay in the Blue Mountains, so we should, you know, most of them have shipped back over to Erebor by now, um, but that we, um, um, we, we, uh, we want to make sure that the people who stay there have, you know, have so, so Dwalin being sent back as a leader, you know, sort of Thorin's successor makes a certain amount of sense. Great view from here, right? All the way back down the hall, you can see the statue of the dwarf that I hope is Telkar the Smith uh, and the light framing it right here from behind, right? That's, that's, uh, that, that's pretty cool. Um, but notice how little of the space they're using, right? Um, and how little of it seems dedicated to the kind of stuff that they want to do. Again, the one exception is here, this reception area. This is clearly designed to be used as he, Dwalin, is using it. The other thing, of course, uh, there's one other area which is clearly being used in exactly the way <clears throat> in which it was intended to be used. But that, of course, is again perfectly um, compatible with the idea of it being built by the original dwarves. Who's that guy? No idea who that guy is. Okay. Maker's Hall. So this is where the craftsmen live? Okay. Well, hmm. Notice. Uh, who's this guy? Oh, he's a town person. Who's that guy? He's another town person. Oh, he's a watcher. Okay. Is this guy? Ah, the woodworker. Yeah, the dwarvish woodworker. What's he got? A bench, sawhorse, just like the other guys, right? Who's this guy? The tailor. Yeah, what does he got? A wooden table, right? A few crates over there. Again, just like the weapon uh, sellers and everything. What's this guy? 
jeweler. What's he got? Wooden bench, right? Some jeweler's tools. They've all got beer, right? So again, that's all to the good. Um, is this hall being used for its original purpose? Nah, I don't think it was made for woodworkers and and uh, and certainly not over here. Look at this. This is the library, right? This is the scholar, right? Here's the scholar trainer, right over here. Um, and he's got a library in the sense that there are a few bookcases which don't actually have any books in them. Wooden bookcases that have been brought in, not even built in stone bookcases, right? You got to think they probably would have built a bigger library than this. Oh, look, there are a few books. Hey, he started collecting a few books. He's got maybe a dozen volumes, right? Um, then we have, then we go across the way. Now this room is being used for its original purpose, right? This is the forging hall. And we have all of these huge forges for the dwarves to use, right? Eight of them, four on each side, plus the big open pits in the middle, right? Um, I love how this whole room shimmers with heat. Um, it's very cool. There's a toasted bear there in the middle, right? It's all good. Um, this room is, of course, being used uh, as forges, by the dwarves and was clearly designed to be used as forges. That other area, did whoever the dwarf clan was that was here before, did they worry about their their uh, their their tailors and their woodworkers? No, not so much, right? But uh, but here, yeah, here they have uh, they have excellent forging facilities built in, right? Um, and the, of course, Thorin's people. Uh, are using this as it was intended to be used by the dwarves. So, of course, you know, you expect that sort of dwarvish touch, which I think is fun. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I, this all seems to, me, seems to me very fitting, though, again, as I say, um, perfectly in keeping with um, the way that, the, you know, dwarvish culture is depicted and with the concept that this is, in fact, an old dwarvish outpost uh, that... Uh, they have that they're that they're squatting in. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, Clay was wondering what kind of massive things they would need to make in those. Answer: anything they want, right? Um, great works of metal. I, you know, I don't even know, man. I don't. I'm not a dwarf, so I couldn't tell you. Um, the dwarves do seem to be into big architecture, though. That's fairly con that's, that's a fair constant. Oh, wait, hang on a second. I'll go down this way. That's right. I forgot I had to leave my horse at the door there. Do dwarves have their own creation myths? Well, yes, but we don't know that much about it. Now, these tunnels are rough hewn and leaky, of course. Um,. Down underneath, we have the bar and all the store of beer, which, of course, there's much more upstairs in all kinds of different places. Um, I like the bar. We have, uh, I love the troll head hanging above the bar. Um, this is the pub where the dwarves come to drink, accessible from both ends, right? So from anywhere in Thornsgate, you can get down here. Um, 
was this part of the original structure? I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Ragviv says it's the most important place in the hall. That I can certainly believe. Um, I can certainly believe that. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Estelle Aragorn was saying that, of course, in the forges, he thinks it's not lava that you're seeing there, but actually molten metal. That seems to me quite possible. Uh, okay. Anyway, um, I suspect this of being original now, but again, my question is, are they repurposing this? Whatever this was for, was a pub the original function of this building? Of this structure? I don't know. I mean, it, it's kind of nice. It's like the dwarvish speakeasy down here. Um, but, um, there's no clear evidence of it. The bar is made out of stone, right? The bar itself is made out of stone. Um, but of course, the bar could be new. That is, Thorin's people would very likely have, uh, like to see people enjoying themselves. Um, the uh, the the bar itself could have been made by Thorin's people after they arrived. So I don't know. I don't know if this was the pub of the original place. I don't see any clear evidence of it from carvings or or anything like that. But, um, you know, so whether this was repurposed, whether this was... Uh, hey, my friend Grifflet has a Yule mug just like that. Um, anyway. Yeah. I don't know. But it's fun. I love the fact that there is a, uh, a lower level uh, bar here in Thorin's Gate. Okay, let's head up the other side, which will take us out to near the canal, which is handy. Handy to have, of course, a, an abundant water supply nearby. In fact, within the complex itself, so you never have to worry about going outside to get your water, which is inconvenient in the wintertime and, uh, of course, impossible if you're ever to come under attack. So, uh, quite thoughtful uh, to be able to have plenty of uh, plenty of water on hand. Up we go the stairs, and then over here is and we saw as we saw briefly when when I was looking around before. We have the uh, the canal in here and the huge water source. So, um, you know, you can see why how uh, you know I sort of wonder. Oh, the bear is named Baloo. Good name. Good name. I applaud that. Um, not quite as good as a Watership Down reference, but it's okay. Um, uh, I still applaud Jungle Book references. Um, anyway, <clears throat> so I think that their construction here, that is, the, the, if I am right and the Lotro people um, did conceive of this uh, place as, a, as one of the great dwarf workings of old, of a different clan, which Thorin's people are um, are squatting in. It makes sense of the whole thing. Because you see, the reason I was shocked when I came here at first, um, I mean, I mentioned that I found this place shocking when I first arrived, and the reason I found it shocking um, is that it... Um, okay, now we're going to go down to Frerens Court, and we're going to go off uh, up in the hills there for a second. So if you follow me... Um, 
the reason I found it shocking was that I was thinking of those passages, right? I was thinking about what Thorin says about coal mining and stuff, and I was thinking about uh, the the sort of the humility of Thorin when talking about his halls, and I was kind of embarrassed to show them to Gandalf and stuff in the quest of Erebor. And so then I get here, and I'm like, holy cow, like, that's ridiculous. Who would be, uh, you know, who would be shy about this? Let's see, is this where I want to go? Do I want to go up here? No, I want to go around the corner. Um, uh, okay, so, um, yeah, this is where I want to go. This is the path I'm looking for. I just, I, it seemed ironic. I mean, it just seemed comical. Um, and it seemed like one of those moments where, you know, Lotro was just wanting to totally depart from what the book said. It'd be like, Thorin's Hall's modest? No, they're not modest at all. We're going to make a, we're going to make them totally different, which is fine. They can do that. It's all good. Um, but it was just a very marked difference. But the more I've thought about it, the less I think that that's the case. Um, that instead what they're doing, because you see, Thorin's words would still be explicable if it were, if they were squatting in the old remnants of an old, of another dwarf clan's home, because that is how he would think about it, right? He wouldn't be proud of it. You know, he wouldn't be like, ah, come and see my grand halls. He would be like, it's nothing compared to Aragorn and Khazad-dum, man, right? Because it's not theirs, right? It's not their, this isn't their ancestral home, and they would still feel it. And that's why they've had a couple hundred years. I bet that that dude with the three-legged stool could totally have built himself something by now, right? Like I said, they've had time to install a stone bar downstairs. They would have had time to build up a, a, a merchant's bazaar in the middle of the place, Right? Why not? They could easily have done it, but they haven't done it. Instead, they're still using, you know, wooden shelves and, and uh, uh, you know, wooden temporary bookcases. There's the sense still, even after several hundred years, of we're still squatting here, right? Um, this isn't our permanent home, and that seems to work for me. I, I think that works really well. Well, here's the other thing. Nearby, there are these elf ruins, Right? Uh, the elves clearly lived here, but it was a while ago. Um, the ruins here... So these are clearly elf ruins, not dwarf ruins. That's plain to be seen. Look at the way that the columns are chipped here. Right? This is not just a, a house that has fallen into disrepair. This is clearly... Um, um, this is clearly a uh, 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 an elvish... This is clearly elvish architecture. And the stone has clearly been... This has been a long time abandoned, right? Um, and I don't know... And notice how it looks like it is reminiscent of a Regian? I would say. Don't you think? It looks like the ruins that we see in a Regian? Um, yeah, now, you're right. Um, we do see it undergoing an attack in the elf intro. Um, but it's not this one. It's the other town that undergoes the attack. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, yeah, I know I'm running late. We're going to stop soon. I'm almost done. This is, in fact, the last place I wanted to come. Um, but, uh, you know, I wonder if that, if they're suggesting that it would be, that this was a Noldor, these were Noldor buildings? Right, that the Noldor had settled here? Of course, geographically, that would make all kinds of sense. I don't mean from the geography here. I mean from the geography, not even here, but here, 
Right. Arid Lewin over here, this is where Beleriand of old was. So we know that, like, the people of uh, Gilgalad were over here in this area, so there would be Noldor. Uh, so, you know, some of the last of the remaining Noldor, those that are out at, you know, based in Rivendell uh, with Elrond or the sort of the other Noldor, apart from, like, Galadriel. Um, so that there would be Noldor in Arid Lewin does make sense. And this seems to be a Noldor in ruin if, again, uh, just judging by its similarity to the ruins in Eregion that we see, which are certainly Noldorin. Um, so are we seeing here what? An old cooperation? Old harmony between dwarves and elves, which has passed away? If the ins- if that dwarf hold over there is of a similar date of construction with this elf ruin up here, I think it's definitely an ancient uh, elf uh, you know, an, an ancient dwarf stronghold that clearly predates, um, that would clearly predate Thorin's occupation. So that's my argument. That's what I'm going with anyway. I don't know if that's how they planned it, but I think it works, and I think it's kind of fun, so that's what I'm going to go with. So that is Thorin's Gate, which I think is a really neat construction, and again, another another really neat way in which... Uh, Lotro is sort of trying to kind of take what we're told, what we are told uh, in in the lore, take what we are told in the book, and kind of you know imaginatively fill it out and say, okay, just you know, and do the subcreation thing. What would this look like? What would happen? Um, where would Thorin settle down? What would his halls uh, in Arid Luin look like? And then playing some kind of fun what ifs then with that, which I think is really cool. So. All right, well, I'm going to let you go because I know I am going super long here today. Uh, I apologize for that. Uh, I was a little late starting, so I'm not quite as late as it, sound, as, it as it seems, but I am a little bit late. But anyway, sorry about that. Um, uh, and maybe I'm trying to make up in advance for, uh, uh, for having to skip next week. As I said, we won't have class next week. I have to postpone that to the week afterwards. So we'll finish Chapter 2, um, and we'll... Um, We'll we'll continue forward two weeks from today, March <clears throat> March seventh, on Landreval. Thanks everybody, and I will look forward to seeing you guys soon. Bye now. <laughs>